Uh, hello and welcome back to MetaStation. We missed you guys on our week off, but we're back with a recap of episode 106, We Will Rise. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. I'm Erin. I'm an English professor in Mississippi. And this time we are going to start with what's going on over on Science Island with Raven and Murphy and Luna when apparently everyone else is napping. The rotating nap (laughs) shift in Becca's lab seem like, I'm just happy that at least some of them are getting naps. That's a good life change for everyone. Yeah, like they needed to implement that rule in all the places a long time ago because like no one was getting any fucking sleep for a while. Yeah, yeah. I would argue <laughs> that every storyline could have benefited by people having naps. Well, Clark got one I... too. Oh, did she or did she just bang Nyla? It's oh, not really clear. Oh, Nyla that's true. Her. Nyla was like, you know, everybody needs rest. Oh, that's true. Which implies that they just that like. They just did it and then she got right out of bed. Yeah. So maybe she yeah. can get a nap. Maybe she still needs yeah. a nap and that's why everything went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and Bellamy's doing better because he got a nap. Yes. A few episodes ago. Yeah. But Octavia clearly <laughs> wasn't sleeping in med bay and that's why she's all crazy. So. Yes. Oh my God. We have. This is this is like a legit theory. Yes. The nap theory. Yes. Dear Jason Rothenberg, <laughs> we solved everything. This whole show could be over in five minutes with every problem resolved neatly and tidily if you just made everybody take a nap. <laughs> it's the toddler theory. Yeah, just like in writing. preschool. You have to keep like a very elaborate chart. Like, okay, how long has it been since this character got a nap? All right, that means oh that, it's, that it's Jasper's turn to snap in this one. But Jasper is fine in this episode, so clearly he was sleeping before the fire. and That's why he woke up and he was like, I feel great. I got a good solid like three-hour nap in. <laughs> I can die anytime. It's cool. <laughs> He's like, I am good. Rested and ready for the world to end. <laughs> Whereas Monty, you could tell Monty was a little high strung. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think, well, you know, I mean, there's not that many beds left. So maybe Monty and Jasper are sharing a bed now. So, like, they're on opposite Aww, schedules. So, like, precious. Jasper had been sleeping. Oh, you meant rotating. Then, so, like, Monty wasn't. <laughs> Uh, um, all right, Science Island. (laughs) Science Island. Well, so I think the first and most important thing I have to say about Science Island is that it is so important to me that Murphy has a remote control car. (laughs) (laughs) Yes! What a, what a pure and beautiful good in this world. He's just like sitting there playing with robot toys. Also, why did Becca have that? Hey, Becca kind of like fun. I mean, she's yeah. cooped up in there for God only knows how long. You have to have a way to to blow off some steam. I like the idea that that was like how Becca chilled out. Was that she just had yeah. like a whole storage room of elaborate twenty second <laughs> century remote control cars, and that was like when she's bored in the lab, she would like race cars with herself. Like that makes me like her even better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, she probably had like very crazy like ranking systems for the different cars, and, like her oh, assistants. Yeah. You know, in like their downtime, they would soup up their their radio controlled cars and then yes. go have races outside. <laughs> I believe that Becca was that kind of boss. I believe that too. Yes. I mean, she seems like a very sort of like Google campus kind of boss, you know, or she's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Cool, you know, like you just, you just like, you have a cot in your office and, and organic food in the break room and they take naps when you want and like whatever you have, <laughs> creative ideas. Just She's totally that kind of like jeans and a t-shirt CEO. <laughs> I feel like I might in my brain be kind of mashing together Luna and Becca though. A little bit <laughs> <in> that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Luna Luna's the hippie. Becca was a little bit more tight ass. 
I mean, like, I don't know. Maybe she was less tied up. Because, like, we didn't know her. Like, the first, I think the earliest time we see her in flashbacks is when Allie has the Avatar, which is, like, not good news. That's and then after true. that, everything just goes to shit really fast. So, like, maybe she wasn't a tight ass and she only became a tight ass because she realized she was like, oh, fuck, I was too laid back. And that's I accidentally why... ruined the world. <laughs> so, so somewhere, Becca is just like, no, don't listen to the hippie. Hippie equals end of the world. <laughs> this really went off the rails again. Um, <laughs> Uh, oh anyway, I don't actually think that Luna is going to end the world because Luna's the best. No, Luna's going to save the world. Luna's the one that had yes. the game changer idea that Murphy's really salty she got credit for. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I love Luna and Raven and Murphy all individually as characters, you know, and, and I, you know, and I like all of the different combos. I guess we haven't really seen Murphy and Luna, but I liked... You know, Luna, uh, Luna and Raven, um, you know, from a couple episodes. And I really liked, I really liked um, Raven and Murphy. And the three of them together as like a trio is just, I was not prepared for how awesome that was. Like that was a really, really great collection of characters. You know, we talked about this when we had Jason on. Like one of the things that I really like about this show is that they're at a point where the whole ensemble is so strong and just continues to be like growing and growing. You can almost like draw random names out of the hat, pair up two or three characters who barely interact. And all of a sudden you're going in a completely new direction. And I felt like that with this too. Like you said, Luna and Murphy have, have barely interacted except for in the you know context of the whole group. And yet she really is the, I mean, for both what Raven needed and what Murphy needed, Luna was the perfect person. Yeah, exactly. With her sort of mystical hippie grounder magic, meditation techniques, she has the ability somehow to kind of calm whatever brain fever thing is happening with Raven and like sort of talk her down from panic attacks. But that also she can come to Murphy with the, I think, sort of credibility and authority of a person who isn't blowing smoke up his ass, you know, like a person who's been in even darker places than Murphy has been and say, if I can come back from this, you can come back from this. And that he knows that she's not bullshitting him because she's been through things that he can't even possibly imagine. Which is what I love about what, what Luna does and kind of how she enters into the story is that without ever feeling like it's counterfeited or they're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole or trying too hard, it always feels sort of organic and effortless and based on who she is. But she can say things because she's an outsider that people need to hear that they couldn't necessarily hear from anyone else. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of amazing that she she is this perfect foil character for almost everyone that we've seen her with. And yet, like you said, in ways that are totally in keeping with the character that she is, you yeah. know, everything that we know about her. And maybe it just has to do with the fact that I think probably the core of it is that her core philosophy and ethos is so different from almost all of the characters on this show. Yeah. Because she rejects violence, because she just kind of has like a very different attitude towards conflict and towards what like the best way is to deal with things than almost everybody else. I mean, everybody is a fighter on this show. And, and Luna was too, and still is in a way, but in a very different way. The fascinating thing is, I think, the ways that she can be a foil to that impulse to fight on like multiple different levels. So like last season when we met her, she was a foil to, you know, that kind of like blood must have blood impulse to sort of physically fight or to or to fight in terms of like 
you know, Clark being like, well, if she doesn't agree, then we have to just take it, you know? So she was a foil to that kind of, like, whatever you have to do to get the job done is, um, is justified kind of fighting. But I think it's interesting in this episode, too, because... What she does for Raven is is basically like that that mantra that she gives Raven, you know, she's rocking her Raven is fighting. She's literally fighting Murphy, you know, but she's also just kind of like fighting with herself. You know, she's like caught up in that anger and that and that conflict. And and Luna's sort of able to stop and pause and sort of intervene with Raven and let get her to let go of it, let go of the conflict, let go of fighting. You don't have to fight. You know, you don't have to continue to struggle and even with the solution that she comes up with crashing into the ocean raven's fighting 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 and trying to find the perfect thing and then luna because she's got this different sort of attitude is able to say like why fight against this you know the computer why fight for perfection just roll with what you got roll with the the imperfect solution crash where you can you know i think maybe in a way for murphy too i i don't know what do you think does that track with Murphy? I think what was reinforced to us about Murphy in this episode, when Raven's like really letting him have it, is the idea that I guess that Murphy is a person who sort of fights for himself. Yeah, or doesn't in a way though. Be like he doesn't fight back against Raven. He, he kind of accepts what she says. Yeah. But yeah, I know what you mean. I think what she's there to do for Murphy has to do a lot with tugging a little bit at the thread that we've already seen building that. He is a person who needs to be in a community more than he thinks that he does. He is a person who's hardwired for human connection just as much as any other person is. And all of his selfishness, self-isolation, anything that he has to do to survive, kind of mercenary attitudes, are all totally artificially constructed learned behaviors that he has had to adapt to in the various situations in which he's found himself by being cast out by society like multiple different times in multiple different ways in his life. So I think that's given him an ability to sort of say, well, I don't really need you. I don't really need people. I don't really need anybody else. And then he gradually expanded that to being like, okay, well, me and Amori don't need anybody else. We don't need you. We don't need, you know, like he sort of expanded that circle to include like one other person, which was huge. And then I think what we've really been seeing from the season three finale on to now is he still thinks of himself as that person Maybe he doesn't even know why he, like, raises his hand to go fight with Indra and Pike and sticks around to help Bellamy and, you know, work with everyone in the finale. And then, you know, he he sort of frames it to Amori like he's running some kind of a long con on Abby, but he's genuinely and authentically there. He's his own worst enemy and biggest obstacle in just kind of accepting that. You know, I think that her sort of speaking to him from a point of view of being a person who's been down in the dark place and isn't trying, you know, she's not trying to tell him that everything is like puppies and rainbows. She's not trying to change who he is as a person. I think she's just trying to sort of remind him, you are not who you think you are. Like, you think that you're this person who doesn't need anyone, doesn't give a shit about anybody. But like, I've seen the things that you do. And he kind of has like a justification for all those things. Well, this is why I saved Adria. Well, this is why I saved Raven. He, he can rationalize it later to keep telling himself that he is this person who doesn't need anybody. But I think Luna's ability to cut right through everybody's bullshit, you know, like the way we see her do yeah. last season with Octavia, like she she hears the things that you're saying about yourself and then she kind of looks at you and she's like, nope, that's actually not true. <laughs> yeah, 
you you that's what you're telling yourself and you're telling yourself that for this reason right but actually that's not that's not correct yeah and here are five examples of things that i personally with my own eyes have witnessed <laughs> that totally belong you know and then everyone is kind of like bitch what the fuck you know because she's <laughs> because she's just really like she's incredibly perceptive about what people need you know and and, yeah. and and not even i think just about people perceptive about everything like when you think about the incredibly limited amount of knowledge and information luna would have had up to that point about any kind of space technology and yeah. how quickly she figures out that a water landing is possible and that that's Raven's only option to save the ship. Like that Luna thinks that before Raven does, but it makes perfect sense because Luna's like water, like water is her thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I kind of laughed because I was like, <laughs> is it because she figured out space or is because she's like, the ocean is always the solution. Why don't you try the sea? I think, I think it's probably that she figured it out. It's just kind of, I don't know, funny to imagine. Exactly. She's sort of absorbed enough through osmosis, you know? Yes, um, yes. Of just sort of what they're doing and what Raven's trying to do. Also, interestingly, with Murphy, if you think about it, like Murphy's reaction to fighting has always been like when there is when he has an argument or there's a disagreement or something like that with a group of people that he was a part of. His reaction is always to sort of remove himself, right? Right, right, yeah. And, and maybe that started in season one with the Charlotte incident, which, of course, Monty brought up with Jaha. That might be the origin point, where the sort of conflict that he had with the group came to a head and it ended in him being ejected. But the pattern has been ever since, anytime he's at conflict with somebody, he doesn't fight back. He just kind of goes like, well, fuck it. You know, like, all right, fine. You hate me. I hate me. You know, like, right, I'm just going right. to... Like, I don't care, whatever. You know, so his reaction is always to kind of, like, remove himself or 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 even, like you're saying, maybe, like, tell himself that he doesn't, he was never a part of the group or he never wanted to be a part of that group or whatever. And so another thing I think maybe that conversation was doing was Luna saying to him, you know, like, the message that he needed from Luna was was partly, like, hey, I'm a person who's also done terrible things and has had to learn to live with herself, so it's possible. But then also, you can be a person who has done terrible things who has been ejected from society or has voluntarily left the community that she was in. But you can also choose to be a part of, like that doesn't mean that you have to sever all connections, you know? Because like she's a person who left Polis and she left the the flame keepers and all that. And, um, and she went and she made a community for herself and she kind of always keeps choosing connection, you know? Like right, right. she was so pissed at these people, but she's still like, she's lying up there. They're taking her blood. She's taking a nap and she hears the fight between Raven and Luna and she rushes down to help Raven. You know, she's always someone who is looking for that connection. And so I think maybe the thing that she does for Raven is, or excuse me, for Murphy is convince him, okay, yeah, Raven's pissed at you. And she's got reasons. And you hate yourself for a lot of things, including what you did to Raven. That doesn't mean that you have to leave. And it doesn't right, mean right. that you can't that you can't have a relationship with her or that you still or that you don't have a relationship with her or that you don't still have responsibility to her to go down there and be the person who like sasses back at her and keeps her sharp. And so I think maybe she teaches Murphy a kind of different relationship to fighting from her experience that's different, you know, it's different from like, okay, you don't just have to fight all the time. Sometimes you know, she's kind of, kind of got kind of like a judo attitude. You know what I mean? Where it's sort of like you roll with the punch. You know, right, you, right. you sort exactly, of like you yeah. absorb the blow rather than fighting against it. But with Murphy, you know, you see like another another little side of that, which I thought was was kind of cool. You know, or she's like, hey, you don't have to let conflict dictate 
what happens to you. You don't have to let it ruin things. You can choose to react differently, whether it's taking a moment, you know, a kind of like mindful moment to let the rage subside with Raven or whether it's choosing to forgive or look past the anger that someone has directed at you and see that they need you and, you know, go be there for them. I think he's much more like his feelings are hurt much more easily than he like lets on. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. If you're like a dick to him and you like reject him, he's sort of like, well, fine, then I'm going to just leave it. Like, you know, like he does this sort of like little kid thing where it's like, I'm going to reject you before you reject me because he's just so like. Between that and the RC car, he's like such a little kid. This he episode. really is a little kid, you know. He's like and a little like like eight year old boy. <laughs> <laughs> he's like fighting with his sister. Yeah, his hair even looked like oh, mom combed your hair today. You know, like yeah, like, exactly. Like Abby, Abby like forced him to take a bath yeah. and then brushed his hair and then sent him downstairs with his RC car to go play with his sister. <laughs> While she takes a nap. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Yes, literally this. There's something that's really really heartbreaking about his sort of assumption that once somebody has said, fuck you, Murphy, you know, for whatever reason, that what they're saying is you are no longer wanted or needed and there is no place for you. Like everyone kind of only has one strike. And I think some of that is that he is, you know, I think he's kind of a sensitive little bean who's really easily wounded. And has all of these totally textbook teenage boy emotional defense mechanisms, but that he responds really differently when people indicate that he is in some way needed. You know, like he's so responsive to the idea that you specifically have something that we that we need. And he might continue to be sort of like a prickly jackass about it, but he steps up if somebody kind of reaches their hand out to him. Yeah, and I think we see that going all the way back to season one when he was with with Bellamy. You know, like I think Bellamy recognized that he was useful and recognized that he needed to keep Murphy on his side. But I think for Murphy, Bellamy offered him a place, you know, like Bellamy was like, I'm in charge. You're my guy. You've got an in, you've got a spot, you know, like you've got stuff to do. You've got like people who are your people, you know, that's why Murphy went with Bellamy that early. And also why when they kicked him out after the Charlotte thing, it was such a traumatic betrayal. Yeah, because it was it was Bellamy specifically rejecting him after Murphy had kind of let his guard down a little bit and maybe started to think that there was a place for him. He was Bellamy's second, which means he's got sort of a guaranteed, you know, spot. Right, right. Or so he thought, and yeah. then it got pulled away from him. And you know, like again, like not that it, not that. <laughs> Murphy didn't do a lot of things to deserve that, but... Yeah, and some of the things that he was faulted for were things that he didn't do. Yeah, right, exactly. He didn't kill anybody. I mean, like, at that point, you know, he had been a, he, he'd been a giant dick, but he hadn't actually, like, killed anybody or seriously hurt anybody or... Yeah, he was, you know? he was, not, <laughs> he was not a murderer, and they were treating him like he was a murderer, and so I think exactly. that there's... Like, I think there's sort of a woundedness at, like, the injustice of how he was being treated. That it comes so much more from hurt than from anger, but it manifests as anger because he's a teenage boy. Yeah, yeah. And and so I think what, I, what I'm really, really enjoying about his art from 3B on through now is us getting to see in an incredibly well-paced and subtle and nuanced and very realistic way, Murphy being pulled back into the squad in, in a degree where it's like, it very, very clearly seems to be setting up something where he's going to be a key component of, like, involuntarily, not, like, yanked into it, but, like, whoever is, like, the action squad saving the world at the end, he's going to be on it. And I would not be surprised if some 
thing goes wrong at the 11th hour. Abby can't go into space, and it's Murphy that goes into space with Raven. Yeah, I would not be surprised about that either. either. I mean, they're definitely, you know, the fact that he's there the whole time she's running these simulations. Yeah. You know, that he's the one who knows exactly how every single one of them has gone. Yeah. And, you know, he's been there for the whole process. And that, you know, this is the second episode where they've given us some really significant uh, Murphy and Raven time. Right, right. And they're processing their baggage, which they hadn't done before. Right. Yes. So I think. So I would. I would not. Ad- I. I mean. I think. I would agree with that. That. That's. That. It's definitely headed for some kind of big. I was thinking that maybe next week, he might be the one to volunteer or wind up doing the um, the radiation test. Yeah. Unless it's a red shirt. If it's gonna go really wrong, it might be a red shirt. I don't know. I was thinking about that after the the little episode trailer came out you know i think there's a lot of like oh holy shit are clark and abby gonna go sort of like full mount weather you know dr singh and we talked about this a little bit before when we sort of were first inching into the nightblood human trials medical testing kind of storyline and that when they bring back these parallels to major incidents from other seasons they tend to flip them or reverse them or invert them or pull the rug out from under us in some way so i i suspect like we talked about last time or time before that with this with with the nightblood stuff the thing the sort of twist is going to be the idea of consent and that rather than Abby stabbing people up against their will with radiation, um, <laughs> I think it's going to be more like in season one with the culling where there's a necessary awful thing that has to get done. And what Abby brings is the ability to persuade people to volunteer for it instead of doing it to them like against their will. And so I think the idea that maybe part of Murphy's journey is volunteering for some wildly experimental treatment that they don't have any way of knowing if it's going to be successful i mean i i think we the audience are pretty sure probably that it will i don't think they're going to kill off murphy <laughs> but murphy doesn't know that and amori doesn't know that you know and but if if one of those anonymous guards that came with them to Titan's island suddenly has lines in a backstory early in next episode i think we know right right happen. <laughs> well because we do we have that little shot of somebody in that little isolation chamber Yes, and it's it it's a man, and it doesn't look like someone we know. What I what I'm kind of wondering is if that's a trailer editing fake out, and they have somebody show be, up who has been exposed to radiation, and they're trying to treat him, and that is secondary to like that. That's not necessarily at what Abby's doing, you know. So like, so it could be it could be all they could they have they could have like a random grounder in the tank that they're trying to figure out how to like how to help him how to save him you know testing them like testing experimental medication on a sick person is different from testing it on a healthy person to see if it makes them sick yeah yeah i'm really excited for the impending moral quandaries of the nightblood question and kind of what's the thing that's gonna go wrong which obviously something has to because we're only at mid-season so it's like how is this gonna backfire horribly <laughs> at the way they've been pacing it's gotta be it'll be like one an episode it's, i mean that's how it's been going yeah so we so next episode we've got the like we're short a barrel of hydrazine how's raven get the rocket back up into space and then i suspect that another wrinkle in this is going to be 
the volume of night blood that it takes to make any kind of a workable solution is going to require, because like this has got to be how Gaia comes back into the story, right? It's like at yeah, some point yeah. they're going to need more night bloods. They're going to loop in Gaia. The night bloods that she has access to are probably all children. And so then that adds kind of, then there's that ethical wrinkle. Right. Plus convincing Gaia, you know, to help. To even go along with it. Yeah. Yeah. Like find these sacred people and then we're going to make everyone Nightbloods and oh yeah, your, you know, your whole religion is just like whatever because science. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. And then like that's another way that it turns out that they can't actually manufacture enough light blood, night blood for everyone. Then that's another way that the list issue could come back in if that winds up. Yeah. You know, end up having to like. Figure out if there's another sort of numbers. Because I guess, you know, the other thing is, like, if there's a death wave coming, then they still need to have places to shelter inside. Because, like, at the beginning of the first episode, we saw that grounder in Egypt get, like, vaporized, you know? So, like, night blood is not going to stop you from being vaporized. Right. <laughs> it's just going to stop you from dying of radiation poisoning after everything else has been vaporized. Right, right. So you still need to be someplace inside that isn't, you know, that's going to be safe from the death wave. And then you're also theoretically, you know, like once the death wave goes through, that's going to destroy anything and everything. Like there will be no safe water or food. So you still have limited resources for survival theoretically. So Nightblood doesn't actually solve the entire survival problem. Right, right. Nightblood buys you five years to weather the storm, provided that you have a radiation proof place to hang out and does nothing for this. How do we, you know, reconstruct the world? afterwards and yeah so i so i do feel like and basically like nightblood is what allows enough people to survive for the show to get a season five right <laughs> exactly <laughs> we have to have nightblood or we won't have any characters left exactly yeah <laughs> um my theory is that we're on the trajectory of like nightblood is the solution we're going to continue to find a whole bunch of problems or issues or challenges or things that sort of slow down that trajectory and get us to like a big action fact is it going to work kind of finale and then secondary to that there's the question of where everybody goes which i suspect is where the cadigan thing is building towards is that that the combined solution is night blood plus cadigan's 13th level whatever yeah and is it a bunker is it a rocket is it space is it a underground is it a submarine i don't know whatever plan cadigan put in place whether he was prevented from using it or not but whatever his ride out the first prime fire thing was is where jaha's arc seems to be going they're gonna like yeah. find that you know and there'll be some kind of conflict with how they get it removed into that i don't know but um but so it seems like those two like those are our two working lifeboats and it seems really really likely that once again there's gonna be a numbers issue or I guess maybe I just I hope that there will be because then that makes the agreement Clark had with Roan about going 50-50 continue to be meaningful plot relevant yeah, yeah and yeah, yeah, yeah. and the questions that she sort of went through of who goes on the list and whatever being things that continue to have weight besides just through a wrench in some of her relationships and gave Jaha a chance to sort of you know for his kind of whatever long con he's playing <laughs> Shady ass motherfucker. I think he's sincere. I mean, again, he's slippery as fuck. So, like, what is, you know, there's might be limits to what sincerity even means from right. Jaha. But I don't think that he means to be scheming in a nefarious way. Maybe he doesn't know that he is. He wasn't tonight. Like, tonight we were really seeing, um, well, we can talk about this more when we get to the Arcadia storyline. But, but tonight it felt like this was the same 
Jaha that we saw on the arc when they think everything's, you know, everything's going to die. And he's just sort of like, yeah, all right, well, fuck it. Like, he has that sort of like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like, this is this is Jaha when the end is coming. That's when he, he drinks, you, you know, that's when that's he busted when he out the, the whiskey on the arc. So mm-hmm. that's how you know that, that Jaha has decided there is no hope. Yeah, if Jaha is getting drunk with Jasper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh my god. <laughs> oh, and the other problem of course that I think next week is going to um bring up is that since since Black Rain is here, even if they have the night blood at Silence Island, how do they get it back to Arcadia? Well, so now here here is a question that I have that has been puzzling me since everybody landed on science island and then puzzling me even more since arcadia got torched so that lab has 10 floors and it presumably rode out the first prime fire why does everyone it seems not to be move immaculate to the lab yeah. it's like pretty damn big and like the preview photos for next week it appears to have a very nice kitchen the funny thing about that, like that lab set is gorgeous, but like I kept I kept getting distracted during the um, Raven uh, Murphy conversation when he was up in what I assume is Becca's office because it just looks so much like a set from Bones. Like I kept looking at it, being like, <laughs> "That's Doctor Temperance Brennan's office." Like yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's totally her office with like, the glass walls. Yeah, they had that big open plan kind of like lab area in the center with like the stairs going yeah. up around it and like the mezzanine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally, it totally is. And then the, like over all the decor and even like the lighting in that office and all the glass, it's like totally, it's Bones. It really is. So I yeah. just, I'm, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna start calling uh, Abby Bones, and then all the rest of them can be squints. <laughs> Murphy would be a great squint. Like <laughs> Murphy would be an awesome. Murphy would be like the best, like the you know the the like um, grad students. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That Brennan has. She'd be like, she would be like, or he would be like. The grad student that Brennan cannot figure out. That, like, Booth is really good friends with. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, like, either that or hates. But, like, Brennan's just like, I don't get you. <laughs> but Jackson, Jackson would be her favorite squint. Oh, yeah. Jackson and Raven would be, like, her stars. Oh, yes. Raven is, like, her, and is, like, Angela. Yes. Oh, my God. Raven's <laughs> totally the Angela. Yes. Sorry, yeah. everyone who doesn't watch Bones. Or didn't. I don't anymore. <laughs> I haven't in years, but I did for a long time. Anyway, it looked like Bones, which is which is a compliment because oh, yeah. Bones always has gorgeous sets. I'm very, very, very much into that lab set. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah, it's totally beautiful. And the rocket, like just the whole, like Becca's whole decor aesthetic, I'm like so here for but it does by the question. I mean, like, yeah, why can't they move a lot of people in there? Because it is really big. You know, like, it seems it has a lot of levels. So you can repurpose a lot of those. I mean, like, a lot of them are empty and they're not going to use them. So, like, you can bring in cots or whatever and repurpose it. I don't understand why that plus, like, so there's Murphy's Bunker and then there's that. Yeah. But it's like everything on the island survived the first apocalypse. And like, again, so it must perfectly. be radiation Like, proof. not a crack, not, like, a, yeah. not a tiny speck of dirt. So why they don't all just bail on Arcadia, which is a pile of shrapnel, and go like live in the you know in the science lab? Like I I don't I don't know if there's if that's just like for plot reasons or if we're meant to believe that the lab in some way is not 
any longer intact. Like I, I just don't understand. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not like sealed. Although you'd think they. I don't know. I mean, maybe they'll explain it eventually, or maybe people will eventually move in there, and they're just not doing it yet because they thought they had more time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's possible that the black rain comes early. Yeah, that's true. It just it, it feels yeah. It just feels to me like it is. You know, because it's it's just it's so nice to see everyone like clean and like I know <laughs> indoors and nice and safe. And they just established that there are no more showers at Arcadia. So right. now everyone's going to get all gross again. <laughs> yeah, but like, look how nice Murphy and Raven's hair looks. Go send them over there. That just seems like an obvious solution. And then there's the question is just with a finite number of boats, how much time does it take to get everything there? And like all their supplies, all the people, all the everything, you know, before Arcadia is totally uninhabitable. But it just, it feels like, I just been like, the thing has 10 levels, you know, like you can just like, and then you have all the technology if you need it later. So I'm really rooting for that to be a solution. And then maybe like a couple people, like maybe Kane and Abby can have Murphy's bunker to themselves. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Or whatever, you know, or or anybody. I haven't I haven't given it any thought. <laughs> you don't have an agenda. I just picked two characters entirely at random. You're not thinking about the fact that Abby might possibly still be able to carry children. Well, no. No, there's no 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 crazy wild baby speck this week. Not for me, no sir. <laughs> you know, it's like we're at mid season now, right? Like we're at the halfway point. Um, this was six of thirteen. So We've got a lot of balls in the air of arcs they've got to close by the finale. And not just, and we'll get into the Arcadia half of things too, but just purely things like Gaia and the Nightbloods and Cadigan and all those sort of pieces that clearly seem to be playing into what the big save the world scheme is going to be. It feels like those things must have to start heating up pretty quickly for us yeah. to get where we need to get to by the finale, you know, which is called Prime Fire. So it's like, all right, so spoilers, this probably is going to be like, this is the day the storm hits. <laughs> like, <laughs> is everybody indoors? But I like, just in terms of, in terms of what that storyline was doing, I like what it set up as the finale that we're, the kind of solution that we're headed towards and the potential kind of roadblocks along the way of that, you know. So they need to figure out what to do about the fact that they're short one barrel of hydrazine. They need to figure out what to do about the fact that they still haven't actually got a working recipe for night blood yet, you know, and then and then there's going to be potentially some question of how much blood can they take from Luna without harming her and, you know, and like losing her as a resource in order to actually be able to sort of synthesize what they're trying to create. So that story feels like it's on a really nice track I was very happy with. Um, and I'm excited to yes. sort of see see where it goes and, I, and I'm worried about Raven I mean I yeah it's interesting in that story which is kind of the medical story and the story about transforming bodies into you know like sort of giving them new abilities that that we're also sort of facing two a few limitations based on human bodies which is like you said Luna how how much she's her body is capable of giving and still work and then also Raven and potentially Abby and and the fact that like there's stuff physically happening with their brains that is pre- presenting a real obstacle. And I had somebody on um, on Twitter last night, I think it was our friend Megan, pointed out that um, that rage, you know, kind of like agitation and rage yeah, yeah, yeah. is a symptom of brain damage. So, you know, so I think that might be uh, a piece of what's happening with um, Raven this episode. And then the seizure at the end, you know, kind of demonstrating like, again, like she's got this super- supercharged brain, you know, she's got this like amazing abilities, but... There's always that trade-off that 
it's not unlimited. You know, like she can't just keep going and going right, and going. Right. That this level of stimulation is going to actually hurt her at some point and she and she has you know she'll run out well and that's you know what i was sort of wondering was and i don't know if this was just sort of murphy making a snarky aside or some kind of a really interesting little teaser of things to come but the, the little nugget that comes up a couple times about the idea of meditation actually having an impact on her brain yeah so luna's kind of repeating her little mantra and raven says you know meditation's not gonna help me land this rocket and murphy says no but it might actually like you know basically keep your brain from exploding and so part of what i wonder if maybe we're headed towards is does luna contribute she have the solution not just in her well i mean like it's like that line that raven gave her you know what's what's important about i don't remember what it is what the important thing about you isn't your blood, it's your heart. Something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so like, maybe maybe that was also an indication that, you know, Luna's the solution that they need, not just because she has, like, literally the blood that they need, but also because she has kind of, like, skills that they need. That she has this, she has, like, some abilities or sort of, like, you know, like, they need a therapist. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and she's kind of, like, their therapist, you know? Like, she's the person who's, like, all right, you know, like... Let's do our breathing exercises, like take a moment, deep breath, think about the breath, let's do a body scan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, body scan. Oh, you went there. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but you know, I mean a joke, but maybe, but but that seems like it very well could actually be that, you know, on the one hand you have Raven and, and Abby who are these sort of like hardcore technical scientific brains who are looking at this problem as like Abby's almost looking at the body as a technology you know like the body as a kind of like chemical soup that she has to do things with in order to make it work a different way and Raven is is you know she's like trying to make the spacecraft work like she's trying to figure out the logistics of getting to space and getting back in order to do the engineering the like human body engineering that Abby does Raven has to do the rocket engineering and maybe you know the third thing that they need is uh is they need somebody who can who's not an engineer but you know who's (laughs) but who who kind of like takes care of the spirit more i was thinking about all of the neurological studies that they've done on buddhist monks and meditation and the sort of physiological brain pulse activity that happens when you meditate you know like that it has like it actually has a physical impact on your brain waves when you're in a deep state of meditation. So it was interesting to me having that just like a couple different times reinforced that that's a skill that she has that has a real effect on Raven. I think that's setting it, setting it up for like, which I, which I like that her role there is not to be like the blood bag, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the difference between what they're doing and what they did at Mount Weather. You know, right. that she's not, she's not the savage. She's not the blood bag. She's not, she's not the like livestock that they keep in cages yeah. to hang upside down and drain when they need it. She has something in her blood that they need, but she also has something about her as a person that they need. Yeah. You know? And both of those things need to be preserved and protected and used in order for everyone to survive. So they can't go full, you know, they can't ever stop looking at Luna as a, as a person as well as a human body. That, and that we talked about that before when we talked about, you know, the eugenics thing and other issues this season, that, that that's the line you never want to cross is going from seeing 
people as resources or as biological problems rather than as people. I think that that's the line that they're going to push up against. You know, that Abby might in her panic push up against. But again, but like we've always said, like Abby is like Bellamy. You know, like they're the people who are will always look at a human being and see the person. You know, right, they'll always right. see the person in front of them. I don't think that she'll ever... That's why she's not Lorelai Singh, you know? Exactly. That's why she's not Cage Wallace. She's never going to, she might get, you know, it it might get tense, it might get hard, but I think that's why she's never actually going to go all the way there. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I, I definitely feel like the thing that we're heading towards really feels to me like there's a solution that's going to require really difficult choices. I like that they're setting it up just from a little bit we saw in the trailer that Clark and Abby are a united team on that, you know, but like we don't have any of the context for how we get to that point. So like, it seems like, you know, it seems dire where you're like, oh my God, they're going to, you know, Abby's going to be like yeah. injecting people with radiation and they're all going to die. And and that's like really tense too, because the last, because the last time Clark was really with Luna, Clark was like, I'm going to put this flame in your head, whether you want me to or not, you know, like right. Clark was willing to violate her bodily autonomy. So, like, I think that's a really interesting thing to kind of revisit and, and let Clark make a different choice. Yeah, I, and I think that I, that really seems to be, I think, I think part of where they're headed is, like, they're giving us so much time with, you know, with Luna being this really valued and three-dimensional person who contributes so much. They spend a lot of time, I think, reminding us that both Abby and Jackson are so motivated by, you know, by wanting to save lives, by wanting to preserve lives. And they've crafted this sort of scenario where... You know, the walls are closing in on them with fewer and fewer options for any other solution to manifest itself besides the one that's right in front of them. So I think it's it's going to end up being a really kind of beautifully complicated, you know, there's a this and a this, and they're both two totally, completely terrible options. Which one do you pick? And that Clark and Abby are going to do what Clark and Abby do, which is like find that third way. You know, so if your choice is, is either we die or you kill people to test nightblood on them, and then Abby's third way is going to be like, what if we get people to sacrifice themselves and volunteer? How do we, how do you navigate those ethical quandaries so that the thing that has to happen to save everybody happens without turning them into people who are, you know, either total monsters or who are making choices that are so unrecognizably out of character that you're like wait why wait who what (laughs) right yeah 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 so I mean I'm really excited actually to sort of see you know to see where it goes and to see how they play it all out because it really does feel like there isn't a way out of this that isn't going to involve somebody having to make a choice that's really really difficult but I think they've done a really nice job up to this point of of kind of reminding us who all these people are how they all make decisions and so when that really awful choice ends up on the table that that everybody involved in it you know Murphy Raven Abby Jackson Clark Roan you know whoever is whoever is there whenever whatever experiment is happening is happening that that we're being reminded of how they all make choices what they're all kind of motivated and guided by and um and just kind of reinforcing sort of where they all fall on that sort of running thread of the one versus the many question but they've been really consistent throughout this season so far with everybody responding to that the way that we expect they would respond to that so i don't see them diverting Abby into some weird sideline where she suddenly becomes the, you know, the Dr. Singh Cage Wallace kind of doctor. Like, I don't think that that's where it's headed. Yeah, 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 I know. But I'm curious as to where Raven might land on that. Because we had a little of that when she was in Arcadia, 
um, of being perfectly willing to like, no, you should absolutely have left the slaves where they were because we needed a hydro generator. Or like, you know, you can't, you cannot give any of our radiation medication to these sick grounders. And, and she is getting more and more agitated. I mean, like, that's the thing. When Raven gets right. upset and when Raven when Raven can't solve a problem, you know, she gets more and more upset and agitated. And the more upset she gets, the more radical the solutions are that she embraces, you know? Yeah. So, and, and Raven has always had that capability in her and that willingness to, to do pretty extreme things, you know? Like yeah. Yeah. She's pretty gung-ho in season one about like, yeah, let's, hell yeah, let's blow up that bridge, you know? like it, Yeah, she really does have the capacity to be tremendously ruthless, not in a cold-hearted yes. way, but but in a really, really pragmatic, always looking at the bigger picture, always thinking like a scientist, always looking 10 down, steps down the line kind of way. And when it comes down to survival, you know, I right. think like the thing about Raven, one of the things that's so that's like that's so amazing about her and and like also really relatable is like when she's cornered when she's in a position where you know she's about to die like she fights like a wildcat you know like raven just like she just fights so hard you know and she will do anything to, uh, to survive and so i think like those are the moments where raven is like maybe is is potentially really dangerous because she's like yes. so determined to survive and she's so smart you know like if she wants to do something she can figure it out exactly and and i think because she's so smart you know like she figures out if she figures out what she thinks is the right way to do you know she'll like really fight for that so i think that's a really interesting potential conflict that's kind of building up you know if it comes down to some dire situation where like they have to make an extreme choice she could really wind up clashing with abby and clark again you know she already has with both of them but that could that could definitely come to a head and again and it'd be interesting you know now kind of revisiting that conflict with luna there you know with the relationship that she has with luna now it'll be interesting to see if that goes all the way or or if you know if if luna intervenes again or if raven sort of starts to learn how to harness her emotions you know and how to sort of like when she's in the grip of an extreme emotion like like anger or fear like we saw she was this week if she learns how to detach herself from it a little bit i'm not too worried for raven like i don't think she's gonna die uh she's she's too much of a fighter she's gonna make it but i really really don't think that either raven or abby are gonna die you know because because right now it's like they're the only ones that can do what they can do like only raven can fly that rocket them establishing it has to be run on manual they can't run it on autopilot right means raven has to fly it and and there is so there's nobody but raven who can do what she's (gasps) oh my god but maybe claire 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 what 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 if what 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 if what if that's why they had murphy driving the rc car so he can be a pilot later yes oh my god because she can't because of seizures He's there. He's listening to her. He knows the rocket. He's piloting that little car. Okay, so I'm revising my theory. So here's what I think. So Raven's driving, and then, like, Abby's shotgun because Abby, because someone has to actually make the night blood. But if Murphy is their, like, control guy on the ground, and he has to, like, tag in, it's like the foreshadowing of the seizures is not necessarily to indicate to us that one of those characters is going to die. It's to set us up for the very likelihood that Raven is going to end up temporarily incapacitated and Murphy's going to have to step in. Yes. 
<laughs> I did have one more thing that I wanted to mention. Actually, and this makes a very good transition because, in fact, it was a transition within the show. When Murphy's, like, wrapping up his conversation with Luna, he gives a, one of those lines that's, like, very clearly an important line thematically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, I'm trying to remember, like, verbatim, but something like, peace is overrated, it's the survivor, or it's the fighters who survive. And then it cuts directly to Octavia. That's one of those lines where you, like, you hear it and you're like, aha, that's really important. And I thought it was really interesting because I think... You know, sometimes those lines are just kind of like, you know, like, oh, a thesis statement. And that one is, I think, a little bit more complicated because I, it doesn't seem like you can really take it totally straight, you know, with this, because in the, within this episode, I think there's just so much stuff, even within just the, the Science Island storyline, you know, like we were talking about with Luna, there's so much stuff that's about the importance of knowing when to fight and knowing when to let go, you know, or, or in Murphy's case, knowing when to walk away from a fight. Or walk away, you'll give up, and when to keep coming back. So, I, I mean, I think it's kind of cool, like, as a summation of, of Murphy's point of view and Luna's, to, it's to kind of suggests that, that Luna isn't completely right. You know, like, the, that it's not that everybody should be like Luna. It's that you need to have people like Luna, you know, in relationships with other, other people to balance each other out. So there's a kind of middle ground thing happening. You can't always have total peace because you have to fight to survive, you know. So, like, right. fighting is important. But you can't fight, fight, fight all the time. Fighting is also a problem. Fighting is a problem for Raven and Murphy. And then obviously, I think the cut to Octavia on that, I was like, that was a very, like, <laughs> subtle you know, like one character. Yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, gee, I wonder if that line is commenting on the thing that, you know, the right, right. thing that I cut to. But in a way that I think really works because it oh, sort yeah, of yeah. underlines yeah. what is they're doing with Octavia, which we can talk about this. So um, when, we, when we watched the first time anyway... I had really, like, intensely mixed feelings about this episode. Everything in Silence Island was great. The parts that I was a little bit more like, "Ah, I don't know how I feel about this. I had some sort of, like, issues with how it was working were mostly the Blakes, um, Octavia and Bellamy. And the second time around, I felt much, much better about both. Like, I felt like a lot of the the issues that I had the first time through when I was watching the second time and kind of paying more attention and sort of, like, trying to – think about like okay what are my you know I sort of like figured out what my problems were and I was trying to sort of like watch to think about how what I could learn about them when I was um that I might have missed I felt like I did miss a lot of stuff that that actually kind of resolved a lot of things but Octavia is still a tough one though because I think so here's here's the the here's where I'm at with this I think within this episode just this episode self-contained Octavia's stuff works I would agree with that. It is also an incredibly difficult episode to watch oh for all God. of Octavia stuff. Yeah. Like, so hard. Like, the first, her conversation with Bellamy is just brutal. She, like, ripped in, you know, reached into his chest and just, like, ripped oh out his God. heart. And, yeah. Like, ripped out all of our hearts. And then the, the scene with Ilian with the flashbacks to Lincoln was, like, just, I mean, harrowing. Like, that was so hard. And... Marie was just fucking killing Oh, my like, God. God, her face her in that face. last scene. Ugh. I was, like, so upset. I was like, don't make me watch, don't make me watch Ugh. Lincoln, don't make me watch Lincoln. And then, oh, God, but her face, she's so good. I just can't look away, know, you know? I know, I um, know. Oh, my God. Just, like, watching her face crumple into tears Ugh. is so heart-wrenching. So, like, the thing that I think is working about that, in this instance, better than it has in the past. Because there, there's... One of the issues that I had with Octavia, with both of the Blakes, but with Octavia for sure the first time through anyway, is that it it felt like a retread. It felt like Octavia was going back to an earlier point 
Right. Yeah, so, like, returning to an earlier point emotionally that it seemed like she hadn't been in a, in a while and sort of repeating some stuff that they'd already done before. It, it was really jarring and it remains really jarring that she seemed pretty okay with Bellamy in the first episode and then they were separated. And then end of last episode, they come back together and, like, you know, he picks her up and carries her and she's, like, yeah, she's like clinging to him. You know, she yeah. like wraps her arms around him. She's hugging him and she's she's clinging to him and she's holding Clark's hand and she's saying, I tried to say. So like it seemed like based on what has happened in the previous five episodes, it felt like they had established a baseline that was like, okay, they're not totally cool with each other, Bellamy and Octavia, but she's not mad at him anymore. She's mad in general, but you know. Right. Like that's kind of how it seemed. And and they also had, I mean, and this was the, because I'm, I agree with you. I thought, I felt it was like she'd flash back an entire season to like episode like yeah. 310 or something. And the big jarring contradiction for me was that we just heard her in the last episode when she and Nyla are trying to keep Ilion from like burning the building down. And she tells him hurting people, killing people, burning this place down won't bring back the people that you love that you lost. Right, right. Like she's saying the lesson, you know, she's saying the thing that she seemed to need to learn. Right. That Kane had given her that lecture about when she left Polis. Like it seemed, you know, like that very much read as a kind of like Octavia like quote unquote died and then she came back right. and now she's yeah. Yeah, yeah, sort yeah. Of taken that in and has moved forward. And then this was sort of like, well, never mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like but like rewound like rewound back to worse than it was before. Right, right. And in a way where I feel like we're still I guess waiting for payoff of this is going to be but yeah but it felt like removing this episode and just sort of stopping at the end of last episode it felt like where they had been taking her was on this she has to literally like literally hit rock bottom right (laughs) climb herself back up as some new kind of version of herself that is neither the you know sort of artificial construct grounder Octavia nor the Skycrew Octavia but is some sort of new version of both of those people but that you know beginning to sort of re-establish some kind of a connection with the people in place that she came from and and that tracks really nicely with her delivering that you know here's the hard thing that I learned in an attempt to reach Ilian that tracks really nicely with her falling into her brother's arms and holding on to him you know, like, it would take something as extreme as the whole building burning down to, like, put her in a place of letting Bellamy, you know, hold her in that in that really beautiful shot with, you know, the two of them and Clark. And, and so that all felt like, okay, I, I feel it. This trajectory is moving forward. I see where this is all going. I get it. I'm with you. And then, yeah, and then we rebooted back to, like, you know, a whole season ago in terms of this weirdly specific need that both Octavia and Bellamy have that comes up at the most inopportune times to blame each other specifically for things that they didn't necessarily do. You know, like, like, like Octavia's choice to make things about, or not even blame, but like, like plot points being recentered as though they're about Bellamy or Octavia when they're about, when they're really about a bigger thing. Yeah, like the massacre being sort of reframed as being about Octavia out of nowhere in the second half of season three. Just like, what? (laughs) Yeah, so I was thinking about that. And then also the sort of constant reiteration of 
Octavia's belief that Bellamy is responsible for Lincoln's death. And so this gets to, so here's my, here was my thing about the Lincoln flashback thing. And, and I, one thing I was thinking about how that um, little kind of montage thing was cut. I mean, like on the one hand, I feel like, I think on a visceral level, I just so aggressively didn't want to see that really, really, really oh, yeah. unnecessarily no, graphic death again. But also me too. Me too. what troubled me about the way that was edited was it felt like it was framed from the wrong perspective. Like it, what that did by giving us so much Lincoln is you, the viewers, parallel that you're drawing is Lincoln being executed versus Ilian about to be executed when really the parallel is Pike's hand with the gun, Octavia's hand with the gun. And so the shot that I that worked was where where you see Pike drawing his gun out of his holster kind of slow motion and holding it out. But I feel like to me it's like the parallel that it that I think that moment is trying to draw isn't about should Ilian be shot in the head like Lincoln was shot in the head. It's is Octavia the kind of person who can do what Pike did or not? You know, I don't. I I don't. I don't know that that those shots that they chose were the shots that we needed, except sort of for kind of knee jerk shock value, because it feels like I'm more interested in in the Octavia Pike parallel having been drawn in a really literal way, where it's like it's about that. It's more about like what Kane says to her, like you're becoming the thing that you hate. I, you know, that's interesting because I think I read it a little bit a different way. Okay. Or I guess I read it as doing two different things. The way that I think that I kind of like instinctively read it was as shifting from one to the other. So the first part is Kane's point, which is you are in the same position, both physically, like the exact same Standing position in, the same in every spot. way. Yeah. Standing in the same spot, about to summarily execute someone. It's not even for the same reasons, like, you know. Pike had much more calculated kind of political reasons for doing that. And, and Octavia is much more emotional. But, you know, like, but Kane's point again, like, so I think the first part is Kane's is Kane's point saying, like, look, you have become Pike, literally. You are standing out here in the rain, holding a gun in your hand, holding it to the head of a man who is kneeling in the mud. This is literally how Lincoln died. And in this scenario, you are Pike. But to me, the ultimate point of that scene was not a question of, Octavia, are you going to become Charles Pike or not? Because the because the flashbacks for me, like the more visceral flashbacks, which were unbelievably hard to watch, they I I think like for me the way what that was doing was the reasons that we got the shots of her face and all that with those is that that was Octavia experiencing that flashback. That was Octavia right, right. re-experiencing the moment. So like so the trigger was. Kane saying, you are where Pike was. But the point was not to say, like, are you Pike or aren't you Pike? You're making this choice. The point was to put Octavia in a spot where she has to re-experience the pain and the grief of that loss, which she has swallowed down and repressed. Basically, since, you know, like, in that that moment at the end of when Lincoln dies, she cries for a moment, and then she kind of, like, swallows it down and becomes calm. Like, she had to get back to a point where she could remember really remember what actually happened. I think that's the other piece of it. Remembering what actually happened. Pike killed Lincoln. Like, I think that's the other point of that scene. Okay. Is reminding her yeah. and us, the audience. Like, we had to re-see it. And we had to have Kane stand there and be like, here we are again. Let me walk you through this. He was kneeling in the mud. 
Pike had the gun in his hand. Pike raised the gun. He fired it. This is what happened. Um, and have Octavia and the, and the audience through Octavia, but mainly Octavia, remember that exactly. Re-experience that trauma, the way that it happened, not the version of it that she's been sort of running on. And so, so to me, the way the flashbacks worked were about us, the audience, experiencing with Octavia the emotional experience of like a really like a traumatic flashback, you know, of like right, right, right. Yeah. experiencing that trauma. Because the thing that she has not been able or willing to do is to connect with her pain. She's been dealing with it by turning it into anger and hate and, and saying that Octavia is dead. You know, she like, well, earlier she said Octavia died when you killed Lincoln. Well, I mean, you know, that crying face is a very Octavia face, you know? Like she went back to the moment when Octavia died and felt that pain with Octavia again. I think that's what's happening there. I like that interpretation because my big question from this episode, which you may have just answered, is, you know, I kept thinking as I was watching it, if, and, and not so much the second time, but really the first time, I felt like, okay, if we completely lift out from the storyline, Octavia almost dying you know if we if we remove that completely and address the sort of purely logistical like we talked about last time you know like getting moving the chess pieces in place element of it some other way but if we remove her almost dying being thought to be dead kind of come back to life from the storyline what actually qualitatively is different in bellamy or octavia's arc than it would otherwise be like, that was the thing that really got under my skin was it felt like they both were sort of in a amplified version of exactly the same place that they were, they had been at at a previous point. Like, the, it didn't ping them off the wall and redirect their arc sideways into some brand new kind of territory. But I think if your interpretation about this flashback being about, like, the thing that had to happen to Octavia is to trap her in a position where she can't run from the thing that happened to her and she has to actually look at it. Like she can't blame Bellamy and she can't kill people. Like she can't like all the things that she's been sort of putting up in front of her that are getting in the way of feeling grief for Lincoln and what all of those things are that, that those things had to be dismantled one by one. And that Ilian doing what he did was the last thing that she kind of had to hide behind was this this distance that she's created by burying her grief as anger and lashing out at all kinds of people who don't actually deserve it. Yeah, yeah. And I liked, you know, Selena Wilkin in her in her review for Hypable had an interpretation that was the first way I was like, okay, I feel like maybe this makes sense is is that it's sort of reminding us that it's not just that Bellamy didn't kill Lincoln. It's that Bellamy tried incredibly hard to stop Lincoln from being killed and was prevented from helping because Octavia locked him up. Yeah, yeah. And so there's an element of self-recrimination, I think, that she's also been hiding from. And I don't know that we're ever going to have that sort of be made textual. If that's if part of it is that she also blames herself or that she or that at least she understands on some level that this anger is is not just unreasonable but it's really unfair to him based on the reality of what actually happened and that it's just that this is sort of the outlet that that she's picked to kind of you know just flinging her her grief wildly in all directions under the guise of just fuck it i hate everybody so if what we saw in those flashbacks with sort of reliving that moment 
like you said, was about Octavia having to face what actually happened. And Bellamy wasn't there. Right. Bellamy was chained up in a cave. You yeah, know? right. And I, and I think, like, I really liked Selena's interpretation, too. Like, I thought that was really brilliant. And it was kind of the first thing that made me stop and go, like, wait a second. Okay. I have to, you know, like, I want to rethink this. But um, the the idea that blaming Bellamy was a way for her to escape her own guilt for Lincoln's death. Yeah. I think is an interesting one. Again, I'm not sure. It's like one of those things that like, I don't think it'll ever be textual, you know, so it's like, it's maybe kind of a little bit headcanony, you know, but, um, but I think it makes a lot of sense, you know, it's yeah. a lot of sense that, that she has like a sort of pushed down sublimated awareness that she had a hand in the events that led up to Lincoln dying, that she pushed away by blaming Bellamy. Or that, or that at the very least, that Bellamy definitively did not. Yes, right, exactly. Either exactly. either that she recognizes her own complicity or that she recognizes by sort of reliving that, that no part of what actually happened that day was because Bellamy made it happen. Exactly, exactly. That, you know, he wasn't there in a whole bunch of ways. And then the other thing that, that Selena said that I thought was really interesting and I think makes a lot of sense is that the other thing that Octavia is doing, I think, in that first scene with Bellamy is, um, you know, with that sort of insistence that Octavia is dead, you know, Octavia has gone, that she's being cruel to him. She's being deliberately cruel to him, not just because she believes that he is at fault, which I think she probably does and doesn't believe, you know, in, in the ways that we're talking about where where it's it's useful and easier for her to believe that she believes it you know um but it's not just that that's not that's not like she's not being cruel to him because she blames him fully she's being cruel to him because she's pushing him away what she wants is oblivion you know she's in so much pain to say like octavia is dead she doesn't want to have anything to do with the person that she was because the person that she was means that she has to remember lincoln you know like if she faces herself she has to face her grief for Lincoln. She has to think about him in any in a way other than just through sort of like anger. So I think she's cruel to Bellamy because Bellamy is the only person that she loves enough who could challenge that or who loves her enough to push through that. So the only way that she can possibly maintain this, you know, like I am Sky Ripa, you know, like badass, cold killer Octavia is by pushing Bellamy away. And so I think, and and it's incredibly cruel to him. It's incredibly cruel. You know, and this isn't meant to excuse what she does, but I think this is why I I have a lot of empathy for her still. You know, like, I'm not willing, like, to write, I'm not not gonna write off Octavia. No, no, no. Like, she did terrible things to her brother, and her pain isn't an excuse, but it also isn't a sign that she's, she doesn't love him or that she's horrible or that she's abusive or that she's a bad person, you know, fundamentally or something like that. She's just really, really fucked up. So here's where I'm at with the Octavia thing. So I, 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 <laughs> I can't like, this doesn't solve the issue of the super fast reversal from one Octavia to another in this episode. I mean, yeah. I think you can sort of like, if you want to, you can sort of be like, well, there's a number of, I don't know, like she's back in the arc. She hates the arc. Okay. So that's upsetting. Like, right. Everyone's going to die now. That's upsetting. Okay. Uh, I mean, like, there's a lot of things. If you want to look for things, if you want to look for explanations for why she would overnight, like, literally overnight, go from clinging to him to being like, I hate you, go away, 
you're welcome for not killing you. Right. I think you can find them. But it was not, it was, it was executed rather clunkily. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So this interpretation of Octavia in this episode and where I, I think or hope she might go after this doesn't necess- doesn't really solve that problem. I have more questions than answers. In yeah, some exactly, ways. exactly. And I don't know that. I don't know that the fake out death was like really necessary. I mean, like I still it don't. Does, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like it is a factor. You know, the fact that Bellamy thought that she was dead um, is a factor, and I think you know you can see that kind of informing him, but. I think you could very easily and plausibly get Bellamy to that exact same place without her fake out, without the death. So, so I think that is still not resolved and I don't think it ever will be. I think it's just one of those things where it's like, so Octavia was Aragorn for a second and now we're never going to speak of it again. (laughs) But the thing that I like enough about Octavia in this episode and what I think, what I hope that this is telling us about where this trajectory is going to go that makes me willing to let go of those issues is that one thing that this that this episode very clearly did I think was really hammer home very very clearly Octavia is blaming Bellamy for Lincoln's death and she is and that is not accurate like this is the episode that was like right, right. Octavia is wrong for blaming for saying that Bellamy is you know for blaming Bellamy for Lincoln's death she's wrong to be mad at him for that in the way that she is and the reason that she's making that accusation is not really about him it's about all these or not entirely about him you know it's it's about it's not about what he did or didn't do it's about all these other things you know and i think that that that, that has always been true i think Octavia since since the beating I think Octavia is always supposed to have been wrong about that. I don't think that 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 was ever meant to be something that we were meant to be like, yeah, that was the right reaction. You know, I think it was always meant to be a kind of signal that something was going awry with Octavia. And there's a lot of reasons why that didn't land. And we've, you know, talked those, we talked about those last season with the podcast and in other places. So one thing that I'm happy about in this episode is the clarity and assurance with which they were like, Octavia's deep in the dirt you know like she's deep in the darkness right now right, right right she thinks the darkness is the right place to be that is what's motivating her to do these really extreme cruel things which are cruel you know and are hurting people who love her in ways that aren't good um and then at the end you know with the flashbacks like and p.s octavia slash everyone else here is what actually happened you know and here is the pain that she has been avoiding through this anger so i like that i think this like really really clarified where Octavia is at. So that's good. <laughs> Although we went on a little detour for a while first. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the part that's really that I think it very clearly did. The part that I'm hopeful about is I was a little bit worried. So like with the hug at the end of the last episode with the like the blade siblings kind of clinging to each other. You know, the part of me that is that was just like tired of the season three hangover the part of me that's just kind of like okay can we just like whatever move on and the part of me that always just wants the blake siblings to be hugging each other was like yay oh thank god you know back together okay blake siblings we're happy now but there was another part of me the the like less you know emotionally motivated part of me that was like okay but if that's it if that's the resolution that's kind of a cheap resolution because they never actually confronted each other. They never actually confronted, you know, 
what Octavia has done to Bellamy, what the ways that the, the conflict that they've had since season one that has never been fully resolved. You know, they've been sort of like in and out of detente, I think, with each other. Right, but right, like, yeah. But like season two, you know, they were not around each other that much. They made up at the end of season one. They weren't around each other that much in season two. They kind of hugged. Season three at the beginning... They were a little bit at odds because Bellamy couldn't understand Octavia's desire to leave and her desire to, you know, kind of be a grounder. And then Bellamy, you know, like, went with Pike and then everything went kind of, you know, sideways. And then and then if if they were just kind of – if they were just going to, like, be apart for a while and have Octavia almost die and then have that be like, okay, we're done now, I was prepared to accept that. As a kind of, like, we didn't want to go down that path, so we're just resetting. You know, I was ready to be like, okay, I'm going to go with that. Because I was just, like, happy to, you know. Because just, like, emotionally, I was like, I'm always happy yeah, to be it's happy satisfying. to be yeah. okay. Yeah, exactly. But there was another part of me that was like, yes, but. That means that we're skipping over all this other stuff. Like, they have tons of baggage. Both specifically with things like Octavia blaming Bellamy for Lincoln's death. But then also all of that Blake sibling baggage that they've had since Octavia was born. You know, like we talked about this extensively in our um, podcast for His Sister's Keeper 105, that these are two kids who love each other intensely and deeply, but also have like a deeply, deeply dysfunctional codependent relationship. Like they... I love the Blake siblings, but they have never loved each other in a healthy, constructive way. They never have. Like, my sister, my responsibility is, you know, it's like close to, it's an idea that's close to all of our hearts because I think that's like the core of what makes Bellamy so wonderful. But it's also what makes their entire relationship so fucked up, you know? And I think, I think maybe what we're seeing here with them going so hard at Octavia holding Bellamy responsible for... The pain that she's experiencing, essentially. Like, when she says you killed Lincoln, he didn't. But she's holding him responsible for her suffering, right? I think maybe what we're seeing here is confronting the other side of my sister, my responsibility. Like, the dark side for Octavia, which is that in her mind, since her entire life, he has been responsible for her in every way. Everything that has happened to her, he's been responsible for. And it's not just that he's been told that his entire life. She's been told that her entire life, too. So there's this, right. like, really, like, profound way in which I think Octavia emotionally holds Bellamy responsible for everything in a way that isn't fair and isn't right, but is also so visceral, you know, is such a part of who she is and who he is and their relationship. Well, it's like, on this primal level, there's this thing that he, like, this is a thing that he failed to protect her from. Exactly. Like, he was supposed to protect her from everything bad, and he didn't protect her sufficiently from this grief. Exactly. And so the reason why both of them feel guilt for that, inappropriately, is because he believes it's his responsibility to protect his sister from pain, from anything bad. You know, like, I won't let anything bad happen to you, Octavia. And this horrible thing happened to her. And we know that he feels responsible for that. And we know that she holds him responsible for that. But I think that's for the same reason. Because of that, like, at that that primal level, at that very, very base level, they will both always hold him responsible for what happens to her. And it's easy to sympathize with Bellamy for that and not sympathize with Octavia for that. You know, blame Bellamy, blame Octavia for it because... Because it's unreasonable what she's expecting of him. Exactly. But it's also really human. Yes. But I think, like, that's the fundamental tragedy of their relationship. And that is the thing that has to be broken and then kind of rebuilt and resolved 
in order for the Blake siblings actually to reconcile with each other and to have a functional relationship with each other and to actually move forward, like to actually progress. So like, so when I was thinking about it later, you know, like rewatching the episode, thinking about what Selena had said, thinking about, you know, I, I talked a little bit with Selena on Twitter about this last night, thinking about the Blake siblings and who they are and who they were, have been to each other their entire life. You know, like what it is, what the other thing about Octavia, of course, is that, you know, for, for most of her life, she lived under the floor. Bellamy was the only person she had, you know, Bellamy was her entire world. She doesn't know a world in which Bellamy isn't, isn't a piece of every single emotion that she feels, you know, like I don't think that she is capable of separating herself and her emotions from her brother. And this, and again, in this way that it's like, it's super fucked up, but also like she absolutely has no conscious control over that, you know, like any more than Bellamy has right. conscious control over his like overprotectiveness and his need, his almost smothering need to protect her sometimes. And it's fucked up both of them. And so I think the thing that I'm really, really hopeful about thinking back on this, and, and this also makes me feel better about Bellamy's art. Cause I was feeling like the other thing that was really bothering me about this episode or like the thing that kind of like hit me. The first time I watched it, I was like, man, I don't know what Bellamy's character arc is this season. Like, I don't right, know where this is right. going. I was getting really, really worried about it. And Octavia was a piece of that because I kept, I was just like, again, it was that like impatience of the hangover from season three. I was like, oh my God, this again, you know. But like thinking about it some more, I was like, okay, but no. If this heads the direction that I hope that it heads, then this could mean that Octavia is now in a position to actually understand the choices that Bellamy has made, that, that she has disapproved of in the past shooting Jaha, the massacre. Like, she's in a position to understand what it means to be so mired in pain and fear that you kill people, that you do terrible things, you know? She hasn't been in that position before. And now Bellamy, I think, is in a position or moving into a position to actually understand Octavia's perspective in terms of the appeal that Tree Crew had for her, that multiculturalism had for her. He's in a position to understand her perspective. And so I think... This this could be like the, this this could actually be the arc that really truly fundamentally deals with the problems that they've had that they've sort of like pushed under the surface. You know, they sort of pushed away to say like, look, I just love you, okay? Like they needed to get to the point where like one of them was like, my love for you is not enough to fix this, so that they could get to the like core problems and fix those instead of just kind of like pushing them aside. I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. And if that's where this is going, then I'm really ready to be here for it. Because I think, because I think you're right. There's all of these ways in which they both sort of expect Bellamy, and un, you know, un, unfairly, but also totally reasonable based on kind of who they are, to function in some way like a parent. And in that way that you, as a child, view your parents as sort of all powerful and omniscient. Yeah. And so yeah, like, yeah. So when they fail you, it it's like this staggering betrayal on this massive incomprehensible level there's a part of octavia who has never outgrown that mentality exactly like, exactly there's a part of her that like even now as uh you know 16 in air quotes <laughs> year old person that she views him in a kind of parental light that she holds him responsible in that kind of unspoken abstract way that like when you're a kid and your parent is your entire world and you just assume that they have omniscient control over everything that happens to you and that therefore if something bad happens to you or something you know that you don't like that it is in some unquantifiable way their fault i think you're i think you've hit the nail on the head i think that part of the problem is that she has never had to 
outgrow you know she never had to do the thing that kids do with parents where you like go away to college and you like cut the cord and you sort of realize you know like and then you kind of come back and you build a new relationship she and bellamy were never definitively severed in a way where she had to where she where she got enough distance to see him as a person yeah exactly and the thing that 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 created that distance was him siding with pike you know and him participating in things that she disapproved so it's all like tangled up in all of this other crap right and they haven't ever been able to get past that to the core you know well and it goes both ways i think you know like bellamy bellamy now I mean, him saying to Clark on the beach, she hates me, and I keep just going back for more, it's a very sad moment, you know, because he calls himself pathetic, and you can tell he's, like, really torn up about it. But I think that's also a lot more self-awareness than we've gotten from Bellamy about the nature of his relationship with her. Like, Bellamy was not at a point before where he was going to be able to recognize, like, the dynamic that we have on both sides, what I do and what she does is dysfunctional and something's wrong with it. Like we can't carry on. We can't carry on the way that we are and we can't go back to the way that we were because what we're doing is not working. You know, I think Bellamy was just like not emotionally able to recognize that, I think. Like until this moment, you know, and that's a humongous leap forward for him. Yeah, I I think think you're right. I I think that they both had to sort of mutually realize what I am doing to you is not fair, but also what you are doing to me is not fair. Like, like that it's, that it's, he's complicit in it, you know, that, that every time he does jump in to protect her from things, to keep her from having to experience any kind of pain, he's that all along, you know, he's been, he's been reinforcing her worldview that he's kind of, you know, this sort of like this all powerful figure that kids sort of think that their parents have. And also, and also removing opportunities for her to learn to face those problems or, you know, like, face that pain on her own. Which is, like, it's, again, one of those tragic things where it's, like, it's it comes from such a, a loving, protective place. Like, he just... Right. Nobody wants somebody that they love to feel pain. But, like, but you gotta let him, you know? Especially if it's a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think it's, like, you know, the line going from protective to overprotective. It's, like, you know, in the... In the context of the world that they lived in when they were kids, everything that he does, like, it, it makes sense. It's like, I, do, I don't know, I don't know what else he could have chosen in those well, he moments. he could have chosen. He never, I mean, that's the other tragic thing about them is that neither of them had a choice. This is, this is like a logical yeah. result of the situation that they were born into that they never got to choose to enter into or not enter into and they never got to, to, to choose to leave. This is the result of choices that were made by their mother, maybe, but we don't even know, you know, like Yeah, but there wasn't another way for them to, to be. Yeah, exactly. Like this is this is a tragedy that has I mean like the the you know, the the real irony of course is that Octavia blames Bellamy, but ultimately they're in the situation where there is there is kind of no one really to blame, you know? It's it's right. both no one and everyone. Well, because Bellamy was also a child. Exactly. Yeah. Bellamy was, you know, what like six years he old was or six, something yeah he was also a child and and like it's incredibly traumatic for a child to be told like hey you are responsible for another life you know and right. like if you think about if, when he was growing up when octavia was a baby and a little girl keeping octavia happy and not feeling pain was a matter of life and death for him and his mother he had to make sure that she didn't cry or scream or they would have been caught 
and his mom would have been floating. You know, like, they all would have died is what he heard. So, like, it also makes total sense that this sort of, like, visceral pathological fear that Bellamy has of Octavia being heard of Octavia suffering. His, his like, intense overprotectiveness. It, it comes from, you know, the trauma of his childhood. So it's not his fault, but it also produces all of these years and years and years of problems including Octavia learning that he's responsible for everything, you know? Right. And then and then you have him blaming himself and her probably blaming him too for, you know, the first time he fails, you know, like when she gets arrested and that's a direct consequence of something that he did, you know, and, and well-meaning and trying to be kind to her, but it, he fell down on the job as the, like, the one thing that he thought defined him as a person is he's supposed to protect his sister and he didn't manage to do it. So probably on some level... There is a part of Octavia that blamed him for that too, you know, and so that's the framework with which they come down to Earth is that he's desperately trying to sort of make up that lost ground and find any way to protect, you know, like, like, I think even more sort of redoubling his unreasonable obsessiveness with like keeping her safe at all costs and her having for the first time in her life in prison experienced the <laughs> world that he wasn't at the heart of. And so it sort of drives this little beginning of a wedge between them that we just sort of see grow more and more and more. But they haven't ever really kind of hashed that out. You know, like they've... Yeah, no, because like in in season one, they have that big fight, you know, and yeah. they sort of say terrible things to each other. And they don't really ever make up until during the final battle, which is nice. But again, like they don't hash out their issues. They don't talk about it. They're just like, well, we might both die, so I love you, you know, <laughs> which is like... Yeah. Nice, but, like, doesn't actually get to the root of anything. They've never actually had to confront their issues, you know? They've never actually had to, like... Again, they've never... Neither of them have ever had to confront the the pain and the hurt that they've inflicted on each other. Yeah. Um, and they have never had to look at the dynamic that they have and understand the ways that that is destructive for them. And both of them... I think particularly Bellamy kind of, like, had... You know, there's, like, a lot of emotional and psychological reasons why I think he would protect himself from recognizing that. Like, it's a traumatic thing to realize that this thing that defined him is fundamentally fucked up, you know? <laughs> yeah. Now, like, this, this, this thing that, that, that this, this identity that he's clung to is in many, is the things in many ways that is holding him back, or is at least a part of the dynamic with his sister that is, that has grown so toxic. Yeah, and it makes me wonder kind of what I have... I have a lot of thoughts and questions about sort of what's the satisfactory resolution of this. You know, like what's the if if her almost dying wasn't going to be the thing that spurred them into that conversation. And and if she is now left Arcadia, then then I think the question is, you know, what journey does she go on without him? What journey does he go on without her? How long does it last? What happens them in between that allows them in some capacity to come back to each other, having done the thinking they needed to do to really kind of hash this out? And I wonder if part of it is, you know, does Bellamy have to make an Octavia versus everybody else choice and he doesn't choose Octavia? Is it Octavia being put in a position where she has to, you know, where she takes a risk, like she has to jump in to save Bellamy, you know, or protect Bellamy the way he's already always protected her? Obviously, she has to see that he's special as Clark. Well, <laughs> and there's that, yes. Or what is it? See how special you are. See how special he is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I actually have a hunch, I have a hunch about part of it anyway. And this is, 
this is can kind of shift over to Bellamy. And I told you before we started recording. So when we were we were talking last night before we both rewatched, um, and I had talked to some other people because we were both kind of like I think like we mentioned earlier, coming into this episode, we were like worried about the Blakes. And so the other, so with Bellamy, I think the thing that I was really feeling concerned about when I first watched the episode, and I think, and you were too, you were as well, and I know a few other people I talked to, because I was kind of like, is this really a thing? You know, like, am I crazy? Um, I was just feeling like, I had been sort of like this niggling sense of like, I don't really know what Bellamy's character arc is. Like, I, I couldn't figure out where his story was going. You know, there's a, there's a lot of kind of nice character moments that he's gotten in various ways. You know, like some stuff with Clark, and he's had some stuff with Kane, and he's had, you know, like, like he had the slave choice, whatever. It's not that he hasn't had anything to do. Like, Bellamy has had plenty to do, and he's had some nice moments. But I just, like, I usually by the middle of the season, you know, you want to be able to kind of, like, feel like you have a sense of the trajectory that a uh, character is on. And I didn't really feel like I had a sense of that trajectory. And a big problem, I think, was the Octavia death fake out because there was a whole episode where Bellamy basically didn't do anything, you know, except like get really depressed and then scream when Octavia died. And then the next episode was the Riley thing, you know, where he had the talk with Echo about war making you a murderer and then he had to talk Riley down. And and that, you know, we talked on the last podcast about reasons why that we didn't feel like that really worked out you know like a lot of it had to do with like who the fuck cares about riley um why does why does bellamy care about riley you know? <laughs> yeah a lot of riley problems with that big um, questions <laughs> there's some riley problems and there were some like why did octavia die for 0.5 seconds only for bellamy to figure it out so like there's a lot of stuff that kind of pulled away mm. um so watching this episode the first time i was like man i still don't know so the second time through i felt i think i i think i maybe figured it out i think I think I know. Because the other thing that was really bothering me, like, the, the consistent things that Bellamy had were, like, just people basically, like, throwing the massacre back in his face over and over again. Right, right. Every episode, once an episode, he would say something and somebody would be like, oh, it's, you know, like, Roan this episode where he's like, they're burning down tree crew villages and he's like, that's ah, rich coming from you. You know, like, there was somebody make some reference to, like, not letting us forget that Bellamy had done this thing. Um, and then Bellamy would look guilty for a minute, you know. And then the Riley thing was the same thing, where he says to Echo, aren't you tired of us versus them? And then he gives a speech to Riley. And, and the way that that read to me, the f- watching 305, uh, we're in season four, <laughs> um, was I was getting a little bit sort of like, oh my God, okay, like, we, we, keep, we get it. Like, Bellamy regrets that massacre okay got it like it felt like it was getting really repetitive so i was like all right like i don't feel like it's progressing so okay so here's my here's my hunch and i think that this is maybe going to dovetail with with octavia so watching it again we were reminded at the beginning that the, about the the tree crew thing we're reminded that tree crew and ansgeta are like you know mortal enemies since time immemorial aka circa 96 years ago. So then we get the thing where they stop in the woods and Clark gets out to, you know, check the wounded guy. And then the kid was looking around. And then, of course, everybody sees Asgata in the back of the truck because there's no flap covering them. And, like, everyone I know, like, everyone's reaction was like, well, what the fuck? Like, why not put up... Why is there... Why are they just flapping in the wind? You know, like, if it's a giant secret, why don't you close the back of that truck? That seemed really dumb. So this time, what I realized, what that means is, so so that scene, we're told Asgard is burning down villages. Um, the Asgard, or the the tree crew warrior, right before they drive away, is talking to Clark, and he tells them that Broadleaf and one other clan, what was it? Um, 
Plains Riders, I think. Yeah, Broad- Broadleaf and Plains Riders, these two other clans, are riding against Asgata. And Tree Crew wants to join. And he's basically, like, asking Sky Crew to join in. So there's we were setting up, like, hey, remember, Tree Crew considers themselves allied with Sky Crew. And their enemy is Asgata. Then they pull away. And all those Tree Crew guys see that Sky Crew has the king of Asgata riding in the back of their van. So what that means is that now Tree Crew thinks or knows that Sky Crew is allied with Asgata, which means that Tree Crew and Broadleaf and Plains Riders and whoever else is anti-Asgata is going to conclude that Sky Crew is now their enemy because mm-hmm, mm-hmm, they, mm-hmm. they think that they've been betrayed. They think that Sky Crew has switched sides. And then, and then you know, like, Clark disappears, and then we get that thing uh, a little bit later on where um, Bellamy and Roan are in the car together, and they're kind of sniping back and forth again. You know, like, Bellamy says, like, you're just out for your, you just want to save your warriors, and Roan says, you're no better. All of us only care about our people, except Clark, who is the only one, apparently, who has transcended tribalism, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So, but but it's kind of like a reminder that there are these divisions, um, and that Bellamy's, like, right in the center of this Asgata versus Tree Crew kind of thing. So here's my, here's my hunch. I think the reason why we kept, we keep getting reminded of the, hey, but you killed the tree crew army thing. We keep getting reminded that he is a symbol for the grounders in a lot of ways since the first episode. He is a symbol of this kind of tribalistic um, conflict among them. And the reason why he's going back to Arcadia is because tree crew is going to roll in being all like, you guys are enemies now because you sided with Arcadia. And Echo is mm. in Polis with the Ar- Asgata army, which is no longer necessarily loyal to uh, Roan, which our friend Capital Chick pointed to out. Roan, right. um, and guess who's like the only person in the world who can get to Echo's soft side? I think this is setting up a story in mm. which Bellamy is the only person who can broker a peace, who can prevent the war from breaking out. Between Tree Crew and Asgata. Mm. And that is how he's going to earn his transcending tribalism bona fides mm. and like fully redeem himself for having been a part of this giant conflict in season three. I think that's where that's going. I love <laughs> this theory. I I didn't put any of these pieces together the same way you put those pieces together. So this is all like this is another another classic Aaron blowing my mind on air, which I love. <laughs> What I dig about that is that it gives us a reason why all of these things keep getting brought back up that aren't Let's just keep, like, like beating up on know. Bellamy about <laughs> Let's keep beating up on Bellamy in case you forget for more than 30 seconds that he was an asshole last season. And it didn't seem plot relevant, but this way it actually becomes plot relevant that all these people look at him and are like, you're that dick who killed that army. And it also, what I like about it is that it also retroactively makes the massacre itself plot relevant for him in a way that it never was before. If, If that, if him being the person who, because of the massacre, because of the things that he did, is yeah is is kind of like the the iconic you know and, and even all the way back to season one they learned to like Anya respected Clark you know like she was the leader that that had that worked to build some kind of a truce with the grounders but Bellamy was always sort of skeptical of them and slower to come around than you know than Clark and Kane and some of the others and so it it makes perfect sense from Tree Crew's 
perspective that he's the face of the worst that they perceive of of Skycrow and of the of the really darkest kind of moments of their history you know like Bellamy never liked Lexa like he never really fully trusted her he's come around a little bit on people like Lincoln and Indra like individually but not collectively in any particular way and and Trikru doesn't have any any reason necessarily to sort of you know to believe that he is on their side in a kind of macro level where like it's clear you know like Clark has a lot of reasons why it's easier for her to make that case so I like yeah so I like the idea that that positions him as being at the center of because like they because the other thing that they reinforce multiple different times in this episode that seems to be clearly, you know, heads up, keep an eye on this, is that they cannot distribute the Nightblood solution if everyone exactly. is at war with yes. each other. Yes, the only way that everyone doesn't, like, like this conflict, fighting, is literally standing in the way of people surviving the apocalypse. Right, so you have Roan's clan in, like, turning on him. Basically, like, Roan is kind of, like, a little bit of an outlaw now if, you know, if Ice Nation no longer is really following him. And then you have, sort of, Tree Crew, Plains Rider, Broadleaf, anti Ascada alliance and then you have this whole anti-technology cult of which like it like Ilian has if not seen the light has at least realized there's more to sky crew and more to the need for technology than he initially had under like he's he's realized i think that his beliefs were incomplete at least but but the cult still exists and and so sky crew coming in and being like we're here ready to be your best friends again and save you all with our magical technology solution there's like nine different reasons why everyone's going to be like i will shoot you in the face with my arrow <laughs> exactly exactly and i think it would be i mean i don't know is is indra the leader of tree crew now because i think that's another connection that he has like he saved indra right he saved indra's life during that massacre like i don't know but it would be kind of a beautiful thing if the if like the peace that he brokered was through indra and echo these two grounders with yeah whom he has this really deep connection you know like one that he has indra who he has wronged but who he saved right and then echo who he saved and then who betrayed like he committed the massacre because echo tricked him out of mount weather you know right so, like, this would also be kind of a way for Echo to come around and atone for her role. For her in role that. in this. Well, and also with Indra, the other factor that we can't eliminate here is also the Octavia factor with Indra. Exactly, exactly. Like, like would Indra, unless it was an absolute dire circumstance, do anything that would hurt Octavia as much as killing her brother? And maybe this is how the Blakes come back together. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Maybe a piece of that is Octavia seeing Bellamy be that person. Right. You know, broker this piece like learn from all this the the terrible experiences he's had and the terrible things that he's done learn to like sort of incorporate them and use and also transcend them to to make this bigger thing and if it is uh, you know if indra is the tree crew representative then that would be another you know another way for her to watch that healing take place between these two people that she loves indra and bellamy and watch like Indra and Bellamy kind of become family in in a new way. And Indra also has what I what I really love about the Indra Pike relationship, the little bits that we got at the end of last season, and the way that she kind of talked about it with Octavia. You know, I like think Indra has a clarity about people's motivations that isn't emotionally driven. Even back in season two, when Octavia is furious about the bombs, you know, like figuring out about the bombs falling on, on Tondisi and Indra's kind of like, yeah, that's war. Indra's like, you do fucked up things. I mean, and it's her home. Like, it's not that she isn't 
totally devastated. It's that she has an ability to step back and see, like, we make the choices that we make for the reasons that we make them. And she's a, she's she has a respect for the kind of big picture tactics that would be behind that decision, which Octavia just didn't. Yeah, and Octavia has respect for Indra. And so so what I wonder is if potentially, and I really like this idea, if, if we end up with Indra, Bellamy, Echo... Um, Octavia potentially maybe Kane gets looped into this but it's sort of you know those the the two Blakes and the two grounder leaders that they have personal and specific relationships with being you know the only people who can kind of broker the peace and that that requires that they down the table together and also requires that Octavia learns to see her brother in a context other than as her brother you know, which yeah, is, I think exactly. is a piece that's missing. And and so I think for her to see him doing this, not not for her, not in something that's about her, but because, like, this is what he does, you know? And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's the piece that she needs to see. And I think that she needs to hear that from somebody who isn't Bellamy. And I think Indra um, and Echo, too. You know, like, I think I think Echo's perspective on Bellamy is interesting and 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 I so like sort of where her relationship with Octavia goes could be could be of great interest. Well, and Andrew, or, or, or sorry, uh, Echo also has I think perspective on Bellamy now. Where I think you know after the Riley thing in four oh five, she knows that if he says like this isn't about like Sky Crew getting the best deal, this is about saving everyone. I think that she'll believe him. You know, so that might be a factor. Like, if, if, yeah. if he's trying to make a case and other people are, you know, like, Roan, like, sort of react cynically, she might be the person who'd be able to say, like, no, I know him, you know? And I know that he's sincere. Both, and Indra on the battlefield, too, I think both Echo and Indra have seen, have witnessed Bellamy in extreme life-or-death moments make a choice that shows that he is not who they necessarily maybe thought Sky Crew was. They've seen him choose compassion. In really deeply dire situations. Yeah. So if you're right about where this is headed, what I like about this is that it retroactively it retroactively fixes some of the things that I haven't really enjoyed so far. Yeah. <laughs> it, it gives a really clear reason why the Riley thing, the Roan thing, that whole kind of thing was really framed as being about the way Echo is watching Bellamy. Yeah. And it might actually retroactively help out with the fake death thing. Yeah. Because Echo thinking that she killed Bellamy's sister and then realizing that she's not sort of watching him like that might also play in. Were were these things leading up to a position where Echo and her relationship with the Blakes individually and separately and what she now knows about their relationships with each other and who they are as people becomes a really plot relevant piece of executing the part of the plan that was always intending to save the grounders. I mean, you know, I think I think the the perception that Sky Crew is only out for themselves or that they've allied with Asgata against everybody else is belied by the fact that like like what we know is that Clark never stopped trying to find a solution that would save everybody. You know, and maybe Trishana crew comes around if Ilian comes to speak up for Octavia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if, if you have these, you know, individual grounder characters who who speak for their clans, who can kind of say, you know, here's who these people really are, and if they say this is the solution that's gonna save everybody, I trust them. Even if it's, you know, their dubious technology and even if they're allied with Rowan and Asgata and even if whatever, whatever, in order to distribute, you know, the cure that they need to distribute. And if that puts the Blake siblings sort of like firmly at the center of that, 
that makes a lot of things that felt like a weird leap or a plot hole or a kind of bump in the road actually sort of setting up a, just a slower burn than we thought that they were. Yeah. And and also, I mean, the, the other, I think, sort of wild card thing, person and thing that might loop in here too is Gaia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who oh, yeah. has a relationship with Indra and Octavia. And if finding more Nightbloods and or the flame somehow become plot relevant later, then that could be another way that Bellamy and Octavia will have to team up. Well, and that's, and the flame, the the idea that everybody will follow whoever has the flame means yeah, And the fact that everything is now a shit show and Polis with no leader again, and that Roan has effectively been kind of kicked out, means the question of who has the flame uh, like revealing that the flame was not in fact destroyed which will cause more drama right <laughs> but the idea that like if they can either give it to a nightblood or another leader takes it if that becomes wrapped into it in any way too like the fact that we always knew it was going to sort of come back you know the chickens were going to come back home to roost again that the flame still exists but if what they're needing is a way to bring the clans back into some form of unity um either the ascension of a new commander which could be an interesting wrinkle because then like who you know who would that person be this is octavia well now here's a question (laughs) i wonder if it's possible and maybe this is like super crazy if abby i mean if they if they figure out how to create night bloods right does the commander end up being, and not through necessarily through a, like a having to murder all the others, but like if there aren't any other Nightbloods and they're manufacturing artificial ones, do we end up in a situation where like, you know, could like Murphy be the commander? <laughs> you know? Oh my God, that would be amazing. <laughs> Which would be amazing. <laughs> uh, I My money is still like, if that happens, my money is still on Octavia. It's always been on Octavia. Well, that's I mean, yeah, I think I think Octavia would be a really interesting role for her. Um, you know, because the thing that we that we do have to keep you know keeping in mind is that every single person who's ever been interviewed about this season of the show saying like, "What's your favorite? Who whose character arc is your favorite?" Everyone keeps saying Octavia. I know. So I feel like there's like some huge... some big crazy twist is going to happen. Yeah. You know, um, that's going to make all these things sort of make sense. And Octavia getting inoculated with Nightblood, taking the flame, becoming the commander, being the leader who can bridge all of these different groups, I think would be really interesting. And, I, you know, because I think both with her and with Raven, they've been in a position multiple times where they are they're just enough in the loop to like really harshly judge the decisions that Clark and Bellamy have had to make without really having been in the room when those decisions had to be made. And so I think I think a big part of the journey that Octavia has to go through is putting her in a position to have to be you know, if she's in a position where she's a leader who has to make decisions for a group of other people, even on a smaller level, like even if it's just like, you know, a small team of people or like whatever the context she hasn't really had to do that before she's had a lot of the sort of privilege to kind of sit back and be like what y'all are doing is a terrible idea i'm gonna sit here on my high horse and judge you and it's like okay but but in the room when they were like we can do this or this and they hashed it all out and all the reasons were given you weren't there you came in later and you were like you shouldn't have done that so the idea of her as a commander or her you know in some kind of a position where she has to sit in clark's seats a little bit and her brothers too is an important perspective that she doesn't have yet on why they've done the things that they've done so when we were talking before about characters whose whose arcs we were concerned 
maybe didn't exist <laughs> or <laughs> or what they were. Kane so far this season and I mean and, and I say this with I mean everyone who listens to this podcast knows, you know, like Kane is like my favorite character. Kane and Abby are like my faves and I like I adore him. Um so so anytime he's on my screen at a baseline level, I'm like I'm happy. But it feels like most of what he's been doing, how they've been using him this season, and and I feel like sort of how you were feeling with the Blakes, where it's like, this was the episode where I maybe began to get a sense of where his particular arc might be headed, and that it's something that is, I think, is really interesting, if I'm right about it. Um, but so, so most of how he's been used this season has been one of two different kind of things. So I think sort of similarly a little bit to how, how Bellamy I think has been used is that either he exists in a scene to deliver a thesis statement, to have a moment with a character that is about exemplifying or, or verbally stating in some very clear way with kind of a voice of authority because we've, we've come to trust Kane's kind of moral center to say, this is what this scene is about, or, or I am setting up for you what your character arc is now about to be like, sort of like a little bit kind of like, I'm going to just dump this chocolate of exposition right here and then drive away, which has been less satisfying or which I've, which I've enjoyed on a kind of piece by piece level. And have been sort of waiting to be stitched together. These also had um, some really, really lovely individual character moments that are like there's been a lot of character growth for him. Not on necessarily like a plot trajectory, but deepening his relationships with like the the Clark and Kane scene in this episode was so oh, so, sweet. so beautiful and so sweet uh. and such and such a reminder that like you know she's a teenager like you know he puts his arms around her and then she kind of snuggles into his shoulder too and you're just like clark just needed a dad hug you know like (laughs) like he you know and like she's kind of comforting him but like she needs it too and that beautiful little exchange they have where she's sort of in a in a much more textual way than we really got in the in the premiere like acknowledging and giving her blessing to his relationship with abby was so beautiful i mean it's also like a little bit like her letting go of her dad a little bit yeah she's upset you know she's accepting okay like you're my stepdad, you know, like my mom's moving on. Like, I'm going to hug you. You can give me a dad hug. I'm going to give you a dad hug back, you know, like, okay, this is cool. Yeah. When, when she says love to him, it's like a big piece of her letting go of the wound that kind of drove her from the beginning was healed. And, and I also think, you know, I was thinking about this last night. One of the reasons that I really, that I've always really loved Kane and Clark's relationship is like you know if you if you really really sort of drill back to the very beginning like the pre-pilot the incidents that set in motion everything that happened in this story in a way Kane and Clark started it all like it like Jake's Jake's death was the thing turned Clark into the person that she became like that was sort of the origin story for her but plot wise if Kane had not been the kind of person willing to arrest a teenager and throw her into solitary confinement so he could float her when she turned 18 to keep quiet the <laughs> secret, Clark would never have ended up in prison. She would never have ended up on the ground and none of these things would have happened. And so the fact that that's the origin of their relationship and that yet when, when he comes down to earth and they're all kind of on the team together, you know, like that, that neither of them kind of hold that against each other is always really interesting. Like that they sort of right away, you know, like he can see her more clearly than her mom can in a lot of ways, which feels really relatable. She trusts him as a leader. They're the two that are kind of reaching out to the grounders. There's always been a lot going on in relatively small amounts of, you know, of screen time. 
So I really like getting to see that moving from what you presume on the arc was sort of outright antagonism through this kind of tenuous, occasional source of support, kind of co-leader. You know, he's, he's the adult that she can trust when she can't necessarily go to her mom about stuff. Turning into them really becoming a family, I thought was so beautiful. And especially sort of juxtaposed with his his so sweet and heartbreaking attempts to hug Octavia and being brutally oh, rebuffed. It just made me push cry. Away. Like one daughter's like, yes, dad hugs. The other one's like, don't touch me, dad. And he's like, he's like, where will you go? And I was like, Octavia, your dad's going to cry. I'm going to cry. Oh my God. It was that, that was that, uh, I'm so, I'm really emotional about dad came. But, um, so I, so we've gotten lots of really beautiful moments like that. We're being reminded over and over again in these kind of isolated little moments of who this new version of Kane is, that he's incredibly, um, he's empathetic. He's, he's very kind. He loves these kids so much. He loves these people. He believes in peace but then we also get you know the flip side of him the scene with the alien stuff what we're also seeing is that you know he's a person who is the guy who shock lashed pike for the sake of of the rebellion like that guy is still in there like he's still willing to do extreme things in service to a cause that he believes is the greater good which is you know which is peace so we got we got some leader cane we got some dad cane we got some some of that kind of relationship building, you know, and then I'll, you know, the nice little, you know, sort of cabbie from a farm moment that I like. But what I, but it also felt like, okay, so what's the like, what's the thread here, and and where I feel like the thread is um, about to kind of twist in an interesting direction is that is juxtaposing that next to where Jaha's arc is going, where Jaha in a lot of ways is. You know, not so much in this one where we saw a lot of him being like, well, fuck it. Our house is on fire. I'm going to sit here and drink. But but up, <laughs> but up until this point where we've seen Jaha being like, Jaha's a better politician than Kane is in a lot of ways. Yeah. In, yeah, he is. in yeah. terms of the specifics of how do you get people to do the thing that you want them to do? You know, Kane and Clark have sort of a similar problem of like, you know, just believing the hardest that you are the person who is right is not crowd charisma or persuasiveness yeah and so it's leaders like bellamy and jaha you know and even abby who have the ability to persuade people to do the thing that they want them to do in a way that does not come intuitively to clark and kane who are kind of blunt instruments and i think the other thing that's really key about you know in a in a small person-to-person level between him and octavia and on a bigger more abstract level with his attempt to turn the mob back is that we're seeing that right now the people do not want Kane's peaceful, compassionate leadership. That is not appealing to them. Like Octavia, you know, like he sort of you know takes her shoulder. And he's like, "It's okay, I got you. It's okay, I'm here." And for a second, you're like, "Oh, thank God, she's gonna like fall into his arms and, and cry." She's like, that is not what I need. Yeah, right now. It's, and she <laughs> and she storms out. You know, and so I think I think that um, the mob, Dad Miller. Um, Octavia, like all of these people, what we're really seeing is that, you know, Kane is still the person that he always was. He's getting what I would worry is like a Ned Stark treatment, except for the fact that Ian keeps tweeting about like, see you next year in Vancouver. So I'm like, okay, so <laughs> Kane's fine. Ian has no Twitter stealth. But you know, but the the sort of the the fundamental tragedy of Ned Stark, the, and I don't like I don't watch the show anymore, and I only read I think the first couple books. But what makes the first season and the first book of Game of Thrones inherently fascinating when you don't know what's happening is that it sets up you know like Ned Stark is this iconic 
figure of like the good man in the corrupt world you know and he's right about everything you the reader are on his moral side he's not sort of like obnoxiously goody tissues about it and it comes from hard-won wisdom but you're like okay so you are you are the hero you're gonna you know and you're ascending to this position of power where you're gonna kind of turn things around for your people and and you're gonna fix this broken system and then the 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 thing that makes that story shocking is that you the reader are going along with like this fits all of the conventions of a story in which inevitably what's going to happen is that this man's going to become the king and like you know overcome all these evil forces and that the corruption of the world is such that instead what happens is at in the very first book he gets beheaded and that's the sign that you're like oh like we're we're not in kansas anymore you know the story is not where you thought it was going and also it's sort of a reminder that like you can't necessarily rely on the good man's inherent goodness if he can't also sort of play the game effectively you know and and so i think right, that there's an right, interesting right, right. thing being built up between there are a lot of ways in which Kane is a a better leader with better ideals, the clearer understanding of the kind of political landscape with the grounders, with the very best of intentions, who's incredibly intelligent. And yet also, every single thing that he has built, this is what's so heartbreaking, everything that he has built has been destroyed. Because he was the first person who, you know, like even before Clark, he was the first Sky Crew person who connected, who made any peace with Tree Crew. And now yeah, if yeah, that relationship yeah. is severed, then that's yep. gone. He took the brand and he became the clan leader of Sky Crew to make peace. And then that got booted. And then everyone hated that idea so much that they elected Pike instead. And then all of the, you know, all the work that he did to build a relationship with Octavia, you know, like that's all dead and gone and then all the work that he did as you know like as a chancellor you know working with Rome the whole political alliance that all got sabotaged so it's like if you look at where he's at right and Arcadia and then Arcadia is now on fire build yeah (laughs) he and Abby spent all of that time turning that place into a home where the people could be safe so it's like look at all of the things that you know from the beginning that Cain has done that he has created at this point in the story Every single one of them has been destroyed because, like, the people did not want them. Wow. That is, like, really depressing. And also, and it's I feel... totally devastating. It's totally devastating. And I also feel, like, really devastatingly apropos to this political moment right. in this country. In a lot right, of right. Ways, yeah. Too. And, like, <laughs> horrifying. An angry mob yeah. is, be- is, like, burning... You know, it was like destroying everything that was so carefully constructed. Right. Because <laughs> nuance is not viscerally satisfying. Exactly. Because a bad thing happened to Ilion, and so he's like, fuck all technology. Right. And so, yeah, so what, what people want to hear is your right to be pissed about the thing right. that you're pissed about. They don't want to hear, like... This is messy and is complicated, and I can't promise you anything except that I'm going to try and that I mean well. And everyone's like, yeah. "Well, I, blah, 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 I'm already listening to you," you know. Um, right. <laughs> so, so I think so. So, so Kane is is so his arc is just. I mean, it's it's deeply and profoundly tragic. But I also feel like the reminders that we keep getting of how deep his personal relationships are with these people are also a reminder that he's not going to give up trying he's not gonna stop 
trying to find a better way and that and that the narrative overall is really positioning these leaders like you know like Kane like Clark like Lexa the people who have been from the beginning like sort of above the kind of us versus themness or or have tried have made you know concerted efforts to kind of reach out across that the narrative continues to maintain that that is the right way that's the good way that's the only way people really are going to survive so it isn't undermining that ideal it's just showing us like this is how hard it is to be marcus kane in this world that you live in where like you know like his people don't want what he's selling them even though he's right or even look at roan like the same things happen in rome right now you know he's exactly like, yeah, Rome is in the same to position. save everyone and his army is deserting you know he took a big risk and it backfired horribly yeah and and so he's i think in a similar position so what i so what i'm interested in is i think and i said this before when we had our um the last time we talked about jaha that i am i'm convinced that jaha is positioning himself to throw his hat in the ring as chancellor again. So I think there's a potential either Jaha kind of versus Kane, which would be interesting just sort of given that like Kane used to be his right-hand man. I think there's I think there's interesting things to kind of be mined there in terms of like who they each are as leaders. You know, I think we have a, a less clear sense of what Jaha's specific values are, but he's much better at playing the game and so so there's so there's one element where it's like okay is it a him versus him you know like battle for chancellor which in some ways is a pike redux i'm less interested in what could be really interesting is if their arc ends up being sort of woven together into however this cadigan thing unfolds that really seems to be sort of about what does it mean to be a leader who actually can get people to do what you say yeah yeah Kane is right, but his ideas aren't working. You know, he can't sell them. Right, right. And and Jaha can get people to listen, but there's a really big question about what he's getting people to listen to or to do. You know, right. like we don't really, there's, you know, we don't really know what Jaha stands for. And I wonder if Bellamy might be the one to kind of bridge that. That's, I wonder, you yeah. I, like, that's what, that's what Bellamy gave Clark. You know, like, Bellamy is kind of like the Vox Populi for, uh-huh. for Clark. You know, potentially he could bridge that gap for for Kane too. You know, like that might be one way that that sort of relationship works. I mean, like you know, I think I think that'll be more about like obviously it's a lot about Bellamy sort of having this capability, but I think like he's got that ability to connect, so that might be where that kind of yeah comes together. yeah. And I think and I think Roan, I think I think Jaha Kane Bellamy Roan in terms of these big leadership questions. I think are all I think they're all they're all sort of orbiting around some kind of similar stuff. And I like the idea that you you know, that you posited about sort of how to like loop in like Indra and Echo and Octavia yeah, and all this kind of stuff. But yeah. I, so I think I think that's kinda of where the heart of the, you know, politics storyline is. So I feel like after watching this episode, you know, after seeing the little little reminders of, you know, Kane and Jaha still work really well together, of Jaha being sort of present in the background in some scenes that were much more about Kane and other people but Jaha kind of watching the you know the from the ashes we will arise sort of title being reiterated again at the end by Jaha <laughs> to Kane you know it was a really like I mean like that moment was just so funny because I was like you know like we're going along with like oh Jaha's kind of normal this episode and then I was like oh nope he's unhinged just saying this like <laughs> yeah, he's holding the medallion of crazy and announcing the, the title of the episode <laughs> Well, he is, as we have established in previous in the in the uh, Blark uh, cutout podcast, he is the character who sits atop the fourth wall 
He does. Like, watching the show as he's also in it, hearing the, you know, non-diegetic music. So if anybody, mm. if any character in the show knows the title of the episode that he's in, 100%. to say it, it is definitely Jaha. It's Thelonious Jaha. Absolutely. And when Monty brings up, when Monty brings up uh, the previous episode, he's like, oh, you're talking about 104, Murphy's Law. Yes. <laughs> I just rewatched that last night, so I'm familiar with events. <laughs> oh my god, that's, that's so accurate. That's <laughs> uh, so I guess that, that like poker face. He's like, oh man, oh uh, shit, they don't know that they're in a show. Okay, yeah. uh, be cool, man, be cool. Yeah, Thelonious K. Jaha knows exactly what show he is watching. <laughs> uh, uh, excellent. Uh, but yeah, so I so I think. Um, I think yeah we we didn't get a ton of Jaha. I know I know episode four hundred eight is the next one that has a big like we're getting Cadigan plot description. Yes, yes. And so I'm assuming we're gonna get a ton more Jaha in that one. I'm not quite sure you know what his deal is in the next one, but but that's but so I think you know I think that there's a clear sense I think of where he's headed. But this one this was the first one where I felt like okay so if what we're I think what we're really getting like Kane's arc is a not a non-beheading Ned Stark. That he's he's the he's the good man, the good leader who wants peace and unity, and the people don't want what he's selling them. And so, how does that end up dovetailing with what's going on with the Grounders, um, and what's going on with Jaha, and who really is going to be the leader of Arcadia? Right. Yes. Yes. That totally makes sense. Shall we talk about Mad Max Fury Roan? <laughs> well played. <laughs> so, road trip and car chases. I would like approximately 73 more hours of just Bellamy and Roan in a rover, like, oh, yeah. sniping at each other, because that was awesome. Every combination <laughs> of who was in what car was magnificent. Yeah, no, every combination of Bellamy, Roan, and Clark is just, like, perfect. It's just so great. There was a part of me that's, like, on one level... I want to maybe find it cheesy when Roan leaps from car to car in slow motion, but instead I was oh, like, "Fuck it yeah!" Great, yeah, no, like so it well was executed. So it was good. so exciting. Even the buildup of of Roan being like, "Get close to the truck, I'm gonna jump on it," and Bellamy being like, "Oh my god, are you fucking kidding me?" And then like thirty seconds later, like seeing Clark with a sword to her throat, and being like, "Jump now!" So, like- uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like as a little mini action movie, like this is a perfect flawlessly executed high six car chase oh yeah that was fantastic like the fact that they did that on the cw budget is also amazing like, they did a fantastic job oh yeah well that's and i kept thinking like we've had rovers for you know like a full season and a half now and this is the first time we've had a real car chase and it did not disappoint it was great yes and i loved like i mean like the whole thing was really great like the, i think like the sequence of it it was like the the it was fast paced you know but like clear what was happening i thought that it was great like all the little moments of sort of like eye contact between you know like clark and bellamy and the cars you know sort of communicating like like checking in and then bellamy you know like like there's just a little sort of like communicating like okay i need you to do this now like i thought that was really great you know bellamy like, pulling in front of the car, and then Clark figuring out that she needed, that he was going to, like, try to shoot the guy, so she had to get him off. Yeah, yeah, her, yeah. You know, so, like, she elbowed him, and then Bellamy with the crack shot, and then, like, Clark almost crashing into each other. And that little smile that they gave each other, like, that, like, Oh, my God, relief, yeah. Like, oh, thank <laughs> yes. God, like, you saved me, and also I didn't, like, crush you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, my heart just, like, grew 
three times. Like I oh was just God. like, I was like, oh, look at their little faces. Like I will never, I will never get tired of that moment. I like, you know, as like ride or die Blark person, like even more than the beach scene, that smile is like, that's all I need. Okay. The episode can be over. Yeah. <laughs> the smile was adorable, but I also like, but the thing that was so fun was like the three of them are such a fantastic, like action hero triad. Oh yeah. You know, like her in one car being held hostage, Bellamy driving the other one, Roan leaping around on roughs. You know, and I'm willing to sort of suspend disbelief of like when, you know, Clark learned to drive, whatever. Like yeah, she yeah, was yeah. like perfect for Clark. You know, she's very strategic. She's like, all right, I got to drive until they find me. And then, you know, she's like really quick at figuring out like, all right, I'm going to let up off the gas so they can catch up, you know, like figuring out, you know, what she needed to do to help Bellamy and Roan out to, you know, to get the situation under control. Like, so it's very Clark, you know, she's very strategic. You know, like Bellamy's like with his like situational awareness and yeah, like, yeah. you know, being able to like maneuver the car in the right place. And then Roan just being like a total fucking badass, you know, like killing his own guy. Yeah. Calling him a traitor and kicking him off. The th- I mean, it was just like, you know, everything was firing on all cylinders. No pun intended. I think what I liked about it the most was that it at no point felt like Jason sat down and he was like, you know, we haven't had yet a car chase. Let's just like yeah, throw yeah. one in. Like like everything about how it happened, how it was executed, and how everybody behaved was both totally in character and also moving the plot forward. Because yeah. then, then you get the big thick out at the end of like they go through all of this effort, save the barrels, you get you get the oh shit, oh shit shot of like a barrel almost falling off, and Roan has to like stab the guy in time to be able to push the barrel back on, and you're like, Oh thank God, we you know and then they realize that like that then they're a short one. And I actually really like that, too, because, you know, I, I like the little touch, you know, with the short one barrel, which is one of those things where it's like every episode has got to be a setback. But I like that one because, like, when, when Roan says tree crew arrow, like, I thought that was a nice little callback to the kind of, like, full the overall theme of the episode, which is, like, the thing that's going to kill us is this stupid intertribal warfare, you know? Right. So, like, literally the thing that is now standing in the way of the Nightblood solution is fucking tree crew and Asgata. Just, like, trying to kill each other because that's what they do, you know? And not being able to set it aside for five minutes, you know, for some larger thing. So I actually thought that that kind of, like, fit together with the theme as well as moving the plot forward. And that's something where, again, like, going back to your theory about the idea of of the Blakes potentially being at the center of kind of brokering a peace treaty that nobody else could do, is I think one of the other things that kind of retroactively smooths over a little bit is this kind of continued, you know, transcending tribalism notion as it pertains to the notion that that's sort of a new thing that Clark learned from Lexa, which which we, we talked about before, like sort of undermines the fact that she was doing that before, but is a reminder that like, the clans did once have a commander that unified all of them, including Asgada. Right. And now that Lex is gone, that that is falling apart apace. You know, they're sort of falling back into the old patterns which existed yeah. before Alexa, you know, managed to unite them. So, yeah, I think that kind of, yeah, it's, it's like sort of paying off a thing that has been, you know, actually since season two has really been kind of frustratingly informed rather than demonstrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like the way we learned about that was like having – Kane stumble back into camp and like telling us like oh my god she's the most amazing she did this thing and it was like we never actually got to see any of that we just heard about it so it's sort of nice to like actually get to see 
like, okay, you take Lexa out of this world and here's what's happening. You know, we get to actually see some of the consequences of this rather than just hearing about them. Yeah, it's kind of posthumously reinforcing the fact that she really accomplished something extraordinary that no other leader, even somebody like Roan, who's super savvy, has been able to do. And part of that was, you know, the sort of inevitability of like the tradition of the commander's flame and and their kind of cultural respect for that, but also her herself. Right, right, right. So I think that that also gives a really nice reason for the Clark and Isla scene, which I like, which I thought was super sweet. Yeah, they're so sweet. Like, it doesn't feel to me at all like that's going to become a serious relationship. Yeah, no. Like, I don't think... Nyla was pretty explicit about that, which I think was important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I think it was pretty clear, like, you know, for one thing, the fact that we came into that, it seemed, like, pretty established. Like, that does not seem like the first time that they've slept together. It seems like something that they've... And even, like, the way that they reacted when we saw Nyla... The previous episode, I think, is kind of yeah. We're like they hook up occasionally when she comes by, right? Like they're friends. They like really, they really like each other. They respect each other. You know, this is nice. But even like Clark's invitation was very much like, I'm not gonna be here. Like I want you in uh, Arcadia. You know, basically because like she cares about her and she wants her to get night blood. She wants her to be where she's safe. You know, like, you can stay in my room while I'm not here, you know, and Nyla kind of being like, okay, but this isn't a relationship. And Clark's like, yeah, it's not a relationship, you know. So I I don't think it's going to go anyplace serious personally, but I just really like, God, it's like, you know, I'm really glad for Clark that she gets some comfort, you know what I mean? Like, that she gets a relationship that is really simple, you know, And, and because I think, like, that's really important at this stage for her. Like, obviously, like, you know. Like, I love her in Bellamy, and, like, that's something that is super special. And no matter what way that develops, it's always, like, going to be really special and unique. But it's also very complicated. And, you know, there's something to be said for, like, sometimes you just need something that's, like, you just need someone who doesn't ask anything of you. You know? And who just, like, lets you have a moment of peace and some pleasure. And they don't ask you for anything more. It's that moment, and then it's done. You know, like, there's a kind of, like sense in which like they can kind of find a, a calm in the storm together for yeah. now and I think that's really really nice and lovely and I'm very happy that Clark got that you know it also kind of acted as a nice little moment of like a check-in on Clark's grieving process you know kind yeah, of yeah yeah showing the ways that she has begun to sort of like incorporate her grief and is no longer kind of like mired in it you know like she's at a point where like you know she still thinks about Lexa and Lexa's still important to her like Nyla says you know she's a part of you and she's all she will always be a part of you but you move forward you know Clark has reached a place where she can sleep with somebody else again, which is huge. And Nyla's so grounded and calm and sort of brings out a side of Clark we don't get to see very often, which I really like. It felt really organic just sort of in terms of like the grief arc. It also, I think, one of the little details about that I really like about Nyla, you know, is like that she's not under any kind of misconceptions about where Clark's at emotionally in terms of Lexa. Like she's not, yeah. she's not jealous of Lexa. It's not weird. Like she had like enormous respect for Lexa clearly. I think it's, she, I think Nyla's also that like rare person who's able to really like look, you know, say like you're really, you have this relationship with someone that you loved who is gone and that is unrelated to your relationship to me. She's yep, not yep. threatened. You know, it's like, she's like, these are two separate things. You know, I respect both of them for what they are, which is, like, unbelievably rare in a human being, like, ever anywhere. So Nyla is, like, an amazing person. <laughs> Nyla is, like, the most mature person on this show. <laughs> like, Her and Luna really should get together once a week. I was going to say. Like, be like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, girl, these people. Like, I yeah, love yeah, them. Yeah. <laughs> love them. But, girl. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I was actually thinking about the very, very understated but lovely little parallels that we get of like, you know, Nyla and Luna are these people who are just like entirely grounded in their own truth. And like they are they are both so centered 
in themselves, kind of no matter what shit goes on around them. So I like that partly because anytime we meet a grounder who really bucks the kind of initial set of grounder warrior stereotypes, I'm immediately interested. Me too, yeah. And they both are so blatantly not that. But it also, like, I think it makes Nyla in some ways just as interesting of a foil to Clark as Luna is to, you know, to Clark, Octavia, Raven, Murphy, and everybody else, she just sort of comes at the world from this completely other perspective that Clark, I think, needs to hear sometimes. Yeah, I think so too. I think Lit, Nyla, and Luna both show the power and the importance of, like, or just, like, how huge it is to understand your, like, really, truly, deeply understand yourself, understand what you value and understand what you need. And, like, really, and just, like, honor that, you know, and live by that. Like, that's, they've got that kind of, like, self-possession where they're, you know, like, they're able to say, like, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what's important to me. This is the choice that I will make, and this is the choice that I won't. And, like, they don't feel, like, it would be absurd almost to think about, like, Nyla being jealous of Lexa because, like, Nyla is so, like, Nyla understands herself so completely like, she would never, you know, like, she knows what she needs. And if she's not going to get it from Clark, she's not going to do it. You exactly, know, like, she's yeah. just, like, she has, like, such profound respect for herself as well as, you know, other people. And also they both just have, like, you know, such, like, depths of empathy and understanding for other people, too. Yeah. You know, but, like, with really strong boundaries. Like, they under they understand other people, but they also, like, really, really are, you know, like, they know the line between self and other, which is a, can be a difficult thing. Oh, yeah. I think it was nice to see both of them in the episode kind of on flip sides of the storyline being that sort of centering presence, you know, in some ways that were really lovely. It's nice to see Clark get a little break, but it's also nice to see in the midst of like all of this sort of high stakes chaos that is Clark's life, you know, and, and for a lot of them, like, you know, just when you see these little moments of like human connection and relationship and, you know, affection and intimacy, you know, like whether it's sex or whether it's friendship or whatever. I think on a, on a story level, that's what reminds us, you know, how high the stakes are. Yeah. If something happens to Nyla, the emotional stakes, not just for Clark, but for the audience, are immeasurably heightened because we sort of yeah. have taken these moments. We care about her so much more deeply, you know, every time we get to sort of see yeah. her. But it also, I think it, you know, it reminds us the reason that everybody is, you know, is fighting all the time, is fighting to survive, you know, fighting for these people, um, is because they care about people, you know. And, and I think one of the pieces yeah, that we're missing... Yeah. From last season being like the reminder of the heart at the center of the story was part of why a lot of the big high stakes action stuff like I I wasn't as invested as I wanted to be was because we stopped checking in with those small intimate character relationship moments that sort of remind you why the things that matter matter. Yeah, yeah. And I think that this episode does a lot of work for all the characters involved, but especially but especially maybe... Clark and Bellamy in terms of in kind of subtle ways letting us know where they're at and how they're coping with the situation that they're in you know with the oncoming apocalypse and and how they're coping with you know sort of like the things that have happened to them so far that have shaped them you know so we get we we get like a check-in for Clark with uh you know on Lexa you know like a kind of like a little thing to let us know like here's where she's come from you know, giving the flame to Rowan to now, you know, like this is this is the kind of like the distance that she's come in terms of grieving for Lexa and, and, you know, where she's at emotionally. But I think also that moment with Nyla and then also the one with Kane, we got to see Clark, I think, being open and willing to let herself 
kind of love and be loved again in mm-hmm. a way that mm-hmm. we haven't seen in a while. You know, she's like she's she's opening herself emotionally to people other than Bellamy for the first time in a really long time. Which is, I think, like a huge thing for Clark and also an incredibly hopeful thing. Yeah. For her to have that family moment with Kane suggests that she imagines a time when they will all be together as a family, you know? And her telling Nyla to stay in Arcadia, that was all about, like, we're going to make Nightblood and I'm going to come back, you know? Yeah. And when we come back with it, I want you to have it. And then we're all going to survive this. You know, so Clark is very much in a kind of, like... We are going to live through this. It's not just that we're told that Clark is hopeful, you know. It's that we see that the ways that her hope, that her optimism is kind of shaping her behavior and the way that she relates to people. And we even see that with Bellamy, you know, like when they're in the rover. She, like, knows him so well and she's so aware of him. Like, so she sees that he's upset, you know, and she knows, she figures out that it's Octavia, you know. And her response is she needs time. And Bellamy says... You know, like, we don't have a lot of time. You can kind of see that, like, the, like takes her aback a little bit. You know, yeah. she's still imagining, like, you know, it's okay. you got time. And he's like, I have, like, six weeks. And she's like, what? No, you have forever. Come on. And then again, of course, at the very end, you know, when he turns to her and he starts to say, like, if, this, if I don't see you again, you know, if, when he's sort of recognizing, like, this might be it. Like, I'm going back and you're staying here and I don't know what's going to happen. You know, like, anything could happen even, you know, not even just, like, radiation, but other things. And she says, no, I will see you again. Like, that's another moment of, like, she's not willing to, like, you know, yeah. she's like, no, we are going to say, like, I'm going to come back and I'm going to jam you full of night blood and you are not going to die, Bellamy. Exactly, like, yeah. Like, if I'm on the list, you're on the list. If I'm making night blood, you're getting it. Nobody's dying. Everyone's fine. You know, like, that's kind of, that's kind of where she's at. Yeah, like, I'm not even going to entertain the possibility of that. Exactly. You know, and, and like, a very kind of, like, another moment, I think, you know, just like a nice little moment. Like she doesn't even want to hear him say it. You know, she's like, you're not saying goodbye to me. You know, like I'm not, I'm not saying goodbye to you. Like this relationship is not over. You know, like you are not dying. I am not dying. This is not it. She's really sort of like doubling down on the people who are important to her. Or just like, I guess in a way, it was kind of almost the opposite of Bellamy. Like Bellamy trying to give her last words, you know, like she, she's sort of going around like affirming that she cares about the people that she cares about. But not in a, like, a, you know, like, because she might not have another chance kind of way, but just in a sort of, like, I'm choosing to live. I'm choosing to believe yeah, that I'm going yeah. to live. So I'm, like, I'm, like, taking care of the relationships that are important to me to make sure, you know. And, like, Bellamy is interesting because it's really the opposite. It's fairly clear that, like, he, I think, is, like, his optimism is waning. Like, he'll keep fighting, but he feels like he's probably going to die, you know. So, like. So he tries to talk to Octavia about his relief and she sort of, you know, turns away from him and he's sort of like really aware that this is the last chance he's going to get, you know, like this is the last time on earth that they're going to be alive. And so like he's going to make things right with Octavia. It has to happen now. You know, and I think then, of course, he also has the moment with Clark where he realizes, you know, if I don't say to Clark what I got to say right now, I might never say it. What do you think he was going to say? He was definitely not going to say the words I love you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, like, I just cannot imagine those, like, that, those words actually coming out of his mouth. I think, I do think that whatever he was going to, like, whatever the words were going to say, they were going to mean I love you. (laughs) (laughs) My kind of feeling is that he, what he was going to say, what he was going to try to tell her is, you know, something about, like, what she's meant to him. Or maybe a thank you, you know, like, 
I don't know. I mean, it's like, I, I almost can't imagine him finishing that sentence because I, you know, when I think about it, I feel like it's one of those things where like all of his feelings and all of his, everything he wants to say comes rushing to the forefront. And how do you even begin, how does Billy Blake even begin to, to articulate what Clark means to him? You know, like it's almost an impossible task. Yeah. And with Roan standing right there too. You know? yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, I imagine he would want to say something like, like thank her and tell her how much her friendship and her faith and just she has meant to him and how grateful he is to have known her and to have become the person that he became with her you know like that's kind of the that's kind of how I what I think that he would want to convey to her I think which all of which basically means like I love you right right yeah (laughs) I personally do think that at this point he knows that he loves her my hunch is that if we get any if if anything actually like sort of canonically happens Balark wise romantically this season it will be Bellamy telling someone that he loves Clark although I don't think it's going to be Clark I think a reasonable place for this season to end with kind of where everyone's at emotionally is textual acknowledgement of feelings on Bellamy's side question mark potentially on Clark's side and Clark maybe doesn't know yet yeah that's kind of how I feel and I think there's a lot of like I mean you know on Clark's side like I think it makes sense, like, that she is not there yet, Uh you know? Like, she's still grieving the last person that she loved, and she's she's in a really complicated place. But honestly, like, I'm happy. I don't need them to ever be canon for me to be happy. I just need them to keep being them. Like, they could could keep doing this forever, and I'd be fine. But, um, not that I don't want to see them kiss, but, like, you know, I don't need it. But we do see her sort of, like, she's fully aware of how much he means to her, too, you know? Like, she... She's always, like, concerned about him, and she comes, you know, she comes down to the beach to sort of check in on him, and the fact that she sort of can't quite totally look at him when she says, you know, like, you know, she'll see how special you are, which is a weird thing to say, like, a friend, Hawthorne Whisperer, pointed out, like, like, that's kind of a weird thing to say about, like, your sibling, like. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But, like, you know, so that's very much one of those things where it's, like, that's Clark saying that, you know, it's, like, Clark. Clark telling him that she thinks that, you know, that she knows, that she feels that he's, like, so special and he's so important. And that nice little little Lexa callback, too. You know, like, Lexa was special. Like, special is the word that Clark uses when she, like, recognizes, like, you know, you have a thing that other people don't have and you you occupy a place in my heart that's different from other people. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which I think is where where Clark's at. Like, like Bellamy is, like, in in a sort of, like, echelon of his own you know and like he's kind of her person you know like she's he's her best friend or whatever you want to put it you know like they're just kind of like something special to each other so yeah so that would be my hunch too is that eventually like this season we might get textually bellamy being like yeah i know what this is (laughs) right right right. Um, yeah and and clark not being there yet but um but like i mean besides that the whole sort of like i'm about to say something big to you and then we get interrupted thing is like straight up the most romantic, like, romance trope that they've ever oh, used yeah, yeah. Like, oh, everything yeah. else has always been like, well, you know, sometimes they use it for other things. Like, that is not a trope you ever use. Yeah. In a non-romantic The situation. answer is never, like, Aaron, if I never see you again, please know this is where my will is kept <laughs> and my bank account number is this. <laughs> right, exactly. Delete my browser history. Well, that's why I said, like, no matter what I think it's likely that Bellamy Blake would actually say, like, no matter what, like, I do think that, like, as a character, it would be out of character for Bellamy to actually follow that up with, I love you. Like, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. not going to say that. But that's why it's like, when that happens, the sentiment that is unspoken is always, I love you. Like, 
Always. Like, that is the, that, that's what that trope exists for. Yeah, the framing device is a thing I would not have the guts to tell you if I didn't think there was a chance I might never see you again, I don't want to miss a chance, is. And it's never like, your hair looks nice today. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's a dire circumstances, like, I don't want to die not having said to this thing, which means it's always a high stakes thing. Exactly. Which is why this episode made me feel somewhat more confident that we will get textual admission from Bellamy at some point. Because, like, that's that's a dangling thing that feels like it's going to get picked up. Yeah, I think so, too. I think on his side, for sure. I think I think on his side, but I, I don't... Certainly, I don't think it's going to be reciprocated from her this season. And I don't think he's going to say it to her. My, my guess is it's going to be, like... He says it to someone else, or someone else figures it out. Like I don't know, Roan. Please um, let it be either Roan, Roan or is, like, Kane. Fucking yeah. standing there the entire time. Like every time one of this like shit like this happens, Roan standing there being like, "Oh my god, just make out already." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Roan is totally gonna call Bellamy a call on on this at some point this season. Although it'd be kind of hilarious if they they did they had like a very broy kind of like dude 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 yeah. dude, and like that's it. <laughs> The Ronan Bellamy bromance, I I am just, I am so here for it. I'm here for it in the worst way. Like, I want to just watch it forever and ever and ever because they're both so snipey and taciturn, but also, like, deeply aware of what makes the other person tick. Yeah. Where they just know exactly how to be annoying. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like. Well, that's what makes that trio so perfect is that they all know exactly how to annoy the shit out of each mm -hmm. other. And it's, like, so much fun. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) In very different ways. But, yeah. I, I I just I just love their chemistry. Yeah, and I also too. feel like like Zach McGowan and Bob Morley just must be like so much fun oh, yeah. together. Yeah. I don't know why, but I just like I don't know why. Like obviously I don't know either of them, but I just sort of have this like hunch that they must just be like a kick to work together. Oh yeah. Underneath all of this sort of crazy like high stakes stunt action, I just kept thinking like those guys must be having such a good time. Like I know, they're like, like they're in a, a die-hard movie. Like they're in, the, you know, it's like speed. Like they're like, <laughs> like it is jumping around. You know, yeah. I was like, they just must be like having the time of their fucking lives. Yes, <laughs> it's like they live for this shit. Oh this yeah, is like best week ever. Have we covered everything? I think we've covered everything. Well, if we didn't, it's been three hours and it's almost midnight and yeah. I gotta go to bed anyway. So, so, so we, we covered everything. Sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah. If, we, if, we, if you're like listening, you're like, but you didn't say this, then send us an ask on Tumblr. Yeah, yeah. So we'll be back next week for episode 407, which is Why Am I So Bad With Names? <laughs> I can't wait for Jaha to say that. Why am I so bad with names? It's called Gimme Shelter. Oh, okay. That's right. After the uh, Rolling Stones. Yes. Quick question. Wouldn't it be hilarious if it was called that, but then they couldn't like afford to get the music rights? So I'm there's 100% no reference sure. to it whatsoever. I'm sure that there isn't. I mean, like, I guess that there's a slight chance that maybe at some point Jasper will play it on his iPod. Like they got the rights to Knocking on Heaven's Door, which is like a cover of it. We might get some Gimme Shelter. I suppose it's possible. I mean, I I, w- I would not be at all surprised if we didn't, but it would be cool if we did. Let's call it hope. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> this had to get some fucking cavi in there. There was no Abby. I had to say it. I had to say something. <laughs> so we'll be back here Legit. next week. So at um the they released the CW released the dates for all of the season finales, and we know that the what it what is. What are you doing? What I'm playing Give Me Shelter. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
I just heard, I couldn't quite hear, I just heard music and I was like, is she playing me off? Is this the fucking Oscars? It's just gonna keep getting louder until you stop talking. Alright, you know what? Fine. Alright, I'm done. We're done. This is over. I'm done talking. Goodbye. <laughs>